All right, so it's four o'clock. Uh, Daniel, are you there? I'm, I'm here, yeah. I think there was just an issue with uh, some new headphones I had, so I'm just going back to old school, just holding my telephone. No worries. Um, we have had plenty of technical issues on our end as well. All right, so uh, welcome, everybody. This is the Longevity Biotech Show here on Clubhouse. Um, I'm your host, along Robert, along with uh, Nathan Cheng. And today we are interviewing Daniel Ives of Shift Bioscience. Uh, this show is where we interview scientists, entrepreneurs, thought leaders, advancing the state of the art in longevity biotechnology and how this will impact us and the world in the direct decades directly ahead. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to have a few minutes of introductions, about 25 minutes of prepared questions, uh, then about 25 minutes of audience questions and a few minutes of uh, lightning round uh, at the end. And then there's an open-ended chat for as long as we can go for anyone interested who has the time. So if you can just hold your questions until the half hour mark, that would be great. Also a reminder to everybody that we are recording this. So as per the clubhouse rules, um, if we have you on stage or if you raise your hand and you agree to come on stage, uh, you're consenting to our uh, using your voice and image in the recording. All right, with that, uh, maybe we can start with the intros. Uh, Nathan. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Robert. So my name's Nathan. I'm the founder of longevitymarketcap.com. And there's a, an associated newsletter there that you can check out. It's once a week, just covers different developments in the longevity biotech industry. Uh, I'm also the founder of longevitylist.com. So it's a website where you can find jobs. Uh, companies and investors in the longevity industry space. So, um, yeah, Robert. Great. Uh, yeah, I'm Robert. I've worked in um, biotech, in in uh, bioinformatics, and software research, software engineering capacity for uh, about ten years. And last year, I've gotten more involved with the aging biology research field, um, and uh, have been trying to engage in the longevity biotechnology venture space as well. Uh, so for now, hosting this, uh, co-hosting this show and um, working on a few other projects on the side. Um, Daniel. Sure, yeah, I'm uh, uh, Daniel Ives. I'm the founder and CEO of Shift Bioscience. And uh, when we set up, we were, we were solely focused on the mitochondria, um, largely in sport, inspired by Aubrey who basically said uh, mitochondria are one of the most important things to focus on. Um, we, we've got a new focus now, which I can sort of touch upon um, perhaps a bit later, um, but it's really sort of uh, driven by epigenetic clocks and that, allow, that technology allowing us to audit the, the different hypotheses, like is mitochondria still the most important thing or is there something you know bigger bigger than this? Um, so, yeah, that's, that's where I'll leave it. Great. Well, the focus of the call is is on you today. So, uh, and I know that Nathan uh, invited you on, uh, and uh, uh, I, I guess uh, it's more familiar actually with uh, everything that you're doing. So, I'm going to pass it over to Nathan to lead the uh, prepared Q and A here. Great. Thanks, Robert. So, as I said earlier, the uh, the sort of purpose of this talk is to uh, discuss Daniel's um, history and his experience. Uh, actually bootstrapping Shift Biosense, his company, uh, from the early days to, to where it is now. And the idea here is that we want to be able to 
inspire others who are interested in potentially founding a longevity biotech company to follow in his footsteps or just learn from his experience so that they have maybe like a, a roadmap or a template of how to even get started. So uh, with that, maybe we can just start off uh, with Daniel telling us about uh, where your story begins. Sure, thanks. Thanks, Nathan. So um, basically it all begins in 2008. Um, I, you know, I'd done a biochemistry degree Imperial College in London and uh, you know I just really enjoyed everything about biology the chemistry you put those together it's biochemistry um, but in 2008 the world uh, the world was in a bit of a state with a financial crisis so I was looking to go and um, well, we it's have like we lost him <laughs> technical issues um there we are. Okay, back. He's back. Sorry, guys. No worries. <laughs> Sorry. No right. worries. I, Sometimes... I promise. I promise, uh, I promise. This isn't deliberate. Yeah. So in no, 2008, no. Um, in 2008, there was a financial crisis, and I've been looking at sort of pharma, pharma roles, um, but yeah, but they'd all dried up. So basically, um, you know, it was: do I take something that's a dead end or? do I basically do what's the cool, you know, what's the coolest thing I can do with my skills, basically not, not very responsible and um, decision-making process, but at the, at the very same time, Aubrey had uh, released his book called Ending Aging. And it's just a fantastic book. I don't know, you know, I don't know whether that's the first book someone would read now, but at the time it was just such an eye opener. Um, it just sort of made the idea of, uh, you know, getting hold of aging and reversing it a reality. And, you know, I bought into this. Um, I just thought it was fantastic. And I basically just searched for research projects um, that were basically, you know, along the lines of um, Aubrey's framework, you know, the, the SENS framework, different types of damage. Um, and Aubrey sort of listed mitochondria at the very top. And so I actually found a research project in uh, Cambridge, UK, um, that was a joint project between Aubrey and an individual called Ian Holt. And uh, I, I applied to this project. The project was basically to try and take the mitochondrial genome um, and put it into the nucleus. So um, for those not familiar, the, the mitochondria is a little organelle in the cell, has its own vestigial genome. And most of its genomes transfer to the nucleus, but you've got this tiny, uh, tiny genome left. And, and the idea was let's just transfer the rest of it, right? Let's f finish what evolution started. Um, and that, that, that was a very compelling compelling project um, unfortunately that project being discontinued in Cambridge so we just encountered technical difficulties but there was a side project in the same lab um, that was trying to achieve the same thing um, which was to get rid of mitochondrial DNA mutations basically these mutations basically take over cells and cause lots of problems and so you know you can you can get over that by transferring it to the nucleus and then it's safeguarded or you can try and persuade the cell um, to get rid of bad genomes and basically enrich good genomes. Um, it's something called biased, biased segregation, very obscure phenomenon. Um, but that's where it basically started. So, I mean, the idea was, you know, like I've got some skills, you know, I'm a smart, well, I thought I was a smart person, but I don't, I won't be the judge of that. Um, you know, should I just go for it? Yeah? Like bet on yourself. And so I decided to, um, and that's, yeah, that was, that was the step one. Um, Great, yeah. So, uh, so starting from that uh, that project, uh, 
um, looking at uh, the mitochondria. How did you um, proceed to come up with an idea for uh, your startup, uh, Shift Biosense? Sure. So um, I, I'm going to talk about quite a quite a niche topic here, but it it was it was sort of overwhelming to me, right? The significance. So, um, you know, the people that are interested in something called mitochondrial heteroplasmy, it's like it's either all of their life, or you know, other people just don't know anything about it. So, so basically, there's these um, these individuals um, with a disease. It's called MELAS. It's a rare mitochondrial disease, and what happens is you just inherit your mitochondria from your mum. So it's just, you know, monoparental inheritance. You don't inherit 50% of your mitochondrial genes from your dad and 50% from your mum. It's 100% from your mum. So you could sort of say that you're running your mum's energy system. So these, these individuals with MELAS, they inherit, they inherit a mixture of mitochondria. And, and basically there's a subpopulation in the cell that contains a wild-type genome. And there's a subpopulation that contains a mutant genome that causes a bunch of pathologies and you know, neuro, neuromuscular um, issues, you know, basically high energy tissues that you need a lot of energy, need lots of mitochondria, and therefore you, you get symptoms. Um, so what, what, um, what my supervisor, PhD, uh, PhD supervisor Ian Halter discovered is that if you take one of these patient cells that basically contains two, two sort of teams of mitochondria, the good team and the bad team, and you pop out the nucleus from the patient and you stick in the nucleus from a cancer cell line, um, a particular cancer cell line called A549, that nucleus can basically get rid of the bad team. So, you know, we don't know whether it's preferential degradation of the bad team or it's um, selective reproduction of the good team. Like, we, you know, we're not able to discriminate that at the moment. Um, but, you know, basically this A549 cancer cell line can get rid of the bad team, you know, all the way to 100% good team, which is 100% wild-type mitochondrial DNA. Um, and interestingly, if you have the nucleus from a different cell line, I think it's called 143B, it's an osteosarcoma, you stick that in the, in the, you know, in the, basically in the, in the cell instead of the A549 nucleus, you get the opposite phenomenon. So you, you basically the bad team takes over with time. Uh, and this is, there's other, other cell lines that do this as well. So there's A549 that does something good, which is like, you know, basically get good at, the, you know, get rid of the bad guys. And then there's all the other cell lines that do something bad, which is, the, the bad guys went um, and the, this was like the 90s right when this was discovered and I showed up in 2009 and what had changed since then was that there's you know there was a big database called NCBI Geo and it contains you know just loads of data sets for A549 transcriptome data sets and there was loads of data sets for the other cell lines and um, you know that do the opposite and, you know, I, my my sort of my bet was that I could look at those transcriptomes, compare them bioinformatically and distill what is it that's so special about this A549 cell line and um, that allows it, you know, allows it to do this, this magic, um, you know, which you know, nobody knew what was going on. And um, so basically my PhD supervisor, Ian Holt, he said, well, it, you know, it's not going to cost us anything. So why not? Yeah. So, you know, because there was relatively little risk to him apart from my time of course he let me do it and and I was just so happy to to work on this because that's why you know that's I, I was really there to basically just try and find technologies to overcome problems with the mitochondrial genome and um, a lot of other PhD students in the lab they get they get assigned to a protein so you know there was a protein called NIPSNAT1 there was another protein called uh, 
what was it um LR, no no what was it um anyway it doesn't it doesn't matter just different proteins um and i'd watch some of these phd students and it, it's really potluck like you get assigned to a protein and at the other end you might have something very interesting and a great phd to write up um, to write up but you might get assigned to a protein that's basically a dud and you just have to sort of you know um damage limitation at the end of the phd and i just didn't i didn't want to you know take the risk with my time i really wanted to just you know do something that would you know had the highest potential to work even if it was risky and so i basically convinced ian you know let me do this it, you know i risk my own time but it doesn't cost the lab anything and the short story is we were able to figure out um what this a549 cell line was doing and um, it's, it's, it was it was just uh, it's, it's not actually a mitochondrial pathway. It was a pathway outside the mitochondria. It's a stress response pathway, and um, but yeah, it was yeah, it was so difficult getting to it because you know it basically it was on me to to prove what what was happening. And um, so I did all this computer work, um, and then basically just so much cell culture. People used to joke like, "Do you get any light? Like you're so pale." I'm, I've got quite a pale complexion anyway, so. I do need a bit of sun just to look human. Um, but I wasn't getting any sun. I was just like, you know, I had uh, hundreds of cell lines in parallel going on, you know, um, you know, for ages, months and months. And occasionally, you know, at the end of a three months time course, um, I get contamination. I'd have to start all over again, so, <laughs> which is quite frustrating. Um, but it was worth it in the end. That's the good news, right? It was worth it in the end. So we, we managed to find this activity. And I, I guess the moment I knew this activity um, could be distilled for MILAS, which was a rare disease. For me, it was always about the bigger picture. Yeah, it was okay. This is a tool for aging, um, and if the if the if the lab's not going that direction, and um, this is sort of a natural fork point. And uh, you know, my supervisor was interested in aging, of course, but um, academic labs they do have to focus. Yeah, they do have to publish. And if you start doing, you know, sort of you go out into the wilderness um, on a vision quest, and you know, you don't bring anything back that's that's um you know that's academic fuel that's been lost right that could have been spent creating some sort of story about something um yeah okay so that's great so you were doing your phd uh you know learning about all this uh, interesting stuff in mitochondria and heteroplasmy uh at, at what point did you come to the realization that you wanted to start a company so I didn't I didn't come to the realization immediately. So it was I tried to I tried to do it within academia first. Yeah. So, um, you know, I was working at the MRC Medical Research Council, which is a major, major funder of life science in the UK. And, and you know, basically you can you know, you can talk to them about licensing IP and you can you know, try and get into those discussions. But it was it was all very difficult. And then they have a very strange policy, which is if. If you have anything valuable, the MRC get ninety percent of the upside, right? So if you start a company and you do anything with that company, the MRC basically will have ninety percent. Um, and it just it felt more like a deterrent rather than a commercialization program. Yeah, it was more like let's stop academics going off and doing distracting things in the real world. Like we we need to keep them um, sort of you know doing the doing the academic groundwork. Um, so, like, I tried to go that direction and raise some interest and try and bring Ian along with me. Um, but it just, you know, it just got slower and slower. Things slowed down. Um, we were just waiting for emails from people and, they, you know, we'd, they'd never arrive. Um, and I just thought, OK, this can't be the only way, right? If, if the project's good, which I believed in, 
I've just got to change my environment or I've got to at least, you know, try and find a new environment for this project to keep it moving forwards. And um, so that's when I just basically started reaching out to people that knew better as far as drug development's concerned. Um, there was a great guy called Simon Westbrook that I was introduced to. And um, so he used to work at Pfizer. Um, and then um, Pfizer used to have a headquarters in, uh, in Kent in the UK, um, global headquarters. And when they shut that, um, the facility remained. Um, and Simon had basically been working there a long time. And he, he took over some of that facility and set up a company um, basically with the own, his own IP that he generated. He, he knows a lot about just, you know, big pharma, commercializing things what people want to see, you know, what's not so important. And I basically started talking to him more and more. He, he sort of gave me an idea about what I should be doing, what I shouldn't be doing. Um, and then the question was, let's let's go out and find somebody that's, you know, basically as interested as we are um, in, in, you know, in doing something about, you know, not necessarily aging, but look, we've got a technology here and we want to move it forwards um, and do you want to back us? Um, and so I think... I mean, how much, how much do you want me to keep going, Nathan? Yeah, keep going. Just uh, want to get to the point where uh, you actually, you know, started the company and um, how you actually uh, got to a point where you could develop enough science to uh, pitch it to investors, I guess. That's where we're heading. Sure, yeah. So, um, so, so I was sort of reaching out at the time, trying to, trying to get it done in academia, not getting very far. Um, and sort of, it, you know, it, what what happened was my contract was cut short. So I was a postdoc at the MRC. My contract was cut short by a month, um, and you know, you know that obviously that's not great because you know you were expecting it. But the MRC have a great policy, which is if you get if you basically get made redundant, you get this quite generous redundancy fee. So I think in my case it was about ten thousand pounds or fifteen thousand dollars. Um, and I was just itching, right, to just go out and, you know, go in my own direction. And, I, you know, I just I was getting lots of no's and no's, um, you know, within the environment that I occupied. So, you know, the redundancy, I think, you know, Ian asked me to stay on. I just said, look, Ian, I really want to do this. And it's slightly different. Um, and, you know, for me, this was a natural break point. So basically, I just I didn't, you know, I didn't sort of uh, stick with the academic lab. I just said, look, I'm going to try and do something. And uh, I basically just spent that money um, on experiments. And you might ask, okay, how do you just do experiments, right? You can't just do them in your house on your on your breakfast table. Um, but but what what um, many people might not know is that there's plenty of contract research organisations out there. So these are basically um, pay to access labs. So there's scientists in these labs. They have all the equipment that you'd have in an academic institution. Um, and they take experiments from lots of different directions. So, you know, you can basically do an experiment or conduct an experiment very cheaply because um, you just pay your, you know, your materials and your fraction of the overhead for that, that contract research laboratory. So um, what we were able to do, we did a bit of work, basically, um, trying to find, you know, we discovered a, a very rudimentary and crude technology um, that had real toxicity issues. So we, we basically firstly tried to do a bit of work but you know how do we how do we find something that's therapeutically got you know got a better chance right of getting from you know start to finish um so you know what what is the potential target right that's the first question like where is this molecule binding because we didn't know that we just knew there was a pathway activated and this molecule activated the pathway so where's the target and we we basically we we you know we found what we thought was a potential target we screened a bunch of molecules that were similar to the, the original molecule 
just modified in different ways and you know structurally similar but different um, and we found something that was much better at binding the target that we thought was was the target putative target yeah not confirmed and it so happened this this molecule was way um, better as far as toxicity is concerned so much lower toxicity um, and uh, yeah we basically we did this all in a contract research lab and I think yeah I basically spent that that redundancy money um, and we generated some really interesting data so um, at that point again I didn't know whether this was going to be a company or not I just wanted to go in my direction right it was like you know there's there's a goal which is you know let's uh, let's make a big impact on this process how do I get there right so I had some money I spent that but then I ran out of that money so <laughs> I basically asked uh, friends and family at that stage so I think my dad put in uh, about forty thousand um, dollars I didn't want to ask for any more because you do have to share Christmas with your relatives and if you've lost forty thousand dollars it changes the dynamic and Christmas doesn't have that warm feeling anymore so so you're risking you're risking that so there's a sort of per cap on what I'm going to take from my dad um and then I think I thought my uncle put my uncle put in a bit of money as well obviously not too much again because um it could all go south especially with biotech and especially with something that's a big unknown like aging and then finally um I asked my girlfriend at the time um can I can I use your savings um to do the next experiment and she said no which was which was the right answer um because you know she'd worked hard to to build up that money um and she said you should really go to an investor like somebody that can afford to lose it um which was which was very good advice um and then yeah then we basically and I'll keep going sorry this is this is quite a long monologue um we I'm fortunate that in my family um I have an entrepreneur so my dad and um, there's, there's interesting stories here, but basically in the, uh, in the mid eighties, late nineties, um, he set up a company, which was sort of, it was like a precursor to the internet. It was local area net networking within buildings, right? Not with, not sort of between buildings and between everyone in the world, but it was local area networking. And this generated a lot of buzz in Cambridge at the time. So I think at the age of 25, he had 200 people under his employment and he was approached by, and Microsoft um, and there was a whole sort of you know fallout with his his co-founders because Microsoft wanted to acquire and um, he really wanted to go ahead but then they said no they're going to take on Microsoft but anyway there's this whole excitement and uh, he basically had to resign from that company if the if the um, if the acquisition had gone through he would have had early Microsoft shares and it, you know I don't want to say how many billions but it's just ridiculous so he has all this experience and he had some great contacts in Cambridge just from ages ago. And so he, you know, he did biochemistry as a degree and I kept him in the loop with what was going on. He just you know, naturally got interested. And he said, well, let's, you know, let's go back to my network, which is a bit out of date. Um, but let's go talk to some people. Right. And if it's interesting, you know, that's great. If it's not, we'll find out sooner rather than later. And so we, um, you know, we, we went to talk to a guy called Herman Hauser. So Herman, uh, set up a company called arm so arm is uh they design most of i think an arm arm microchips can be found in most mobile phones um and uh basically he um herman hauser runs a, a firm in cambridge uk called amadeus capital um and so we went to talk to herman you know sort of basically this is what we're doing and um, you know are you interested and it's it was slightly out of his area yeah he wasn't a life science guy so well, you know, he, he, he does do life science stuff now, but, you know, he's, it's not his special, specialty. 
And he was interested, but, you know, I think he was polite and he just said, look, this is very early. This is basically an experimental project. It's like a science project, right? It's not like a company, um, which was correct, by the way. Um, and he said, why don't you talk to um, my friend, Jonathan? So that, um, he had a friend called Jonathan Milner. Um, Jonathan uh, had set up a company called Abcam. Um, I can't remember when it was, but Abcam had been quite a success story in the UK. So like multi, multi-billion dollar um multi-billion pound company, sorry, correct currency. Um, uh, It's a life science or reagents company. And Jonathan had basically done very well out of that and become a a seed seed investor. And so we went to talk to Jonathan and (laughs) Jonathan said the same thing. So he was like, yeah, this is very interesting, but very early, um, not a company, not a company at the moment, Um, but keep me in the loop, right? So keep me in the loop. And uh, so we actually sort of went back dug a bit deeper with our own money um, and did some more experiments and actually moved forward again, right? You know, we, we kept making progress against against the odds. Um, I went back to Jonathan and Jonathan, I think, was just impressed. He was like, well, you know, I can't believe you did anything with the money that you spent. Um, and he, he basically said, look, um, I will gift you, like I will gift you some money. Because, um, you know, I didn't know if this was going to be a company. It could, you know, we, we, we were thinking like maybe non-profit, maybe company he says i'll gift you a certain amount of money just a small amount and condition being i get first refusal if this does become a company yeah so that was the deal and uh yeah we we used the money we spent it well like we generated some good results basically we showed that um we basically we we found heteroplasmy so basically a mixture of um bad mitochondria good mitochondria in, in idiopathic parkinson's disease cells um so it's actually a novel finding um it was you know it, it, the, there's, there's reasons why we found it and others didn't based on technology um, but we found that there was a mixture and we showed that with with our newfound molecule we could basically get rid of the bad mitochondria in these parkinson cells and um, we showed this to jonathan he was like fantastic and um, let, let's do it yeah let's start let's start this company and uh i think yeah jonathan didn't know about aging at the time so i i sort of introduced him to you know the idea that aging is um something that can be overcome it's not this pipe dream it, you know, it doesn't require you to suspend belief and um, it's actually experimentally tractable and we've got you know we've got great uh, you know there's a great opportunity that i'm working on there's plenty of things out there and jonathan very quickly because he was a scientist himself right he was a scientist turned entrepreneur he quite quickly basically you know started looking this up and you know doing some digging got really intre- got really excited like very very excited like shouting from the rooftops excited and um, and he was basically our champion and cheerleader from that point onwards and um, but that's yeah that's that's how we got our first investment and basically Jonathan's been there um from the very beginning and he's he's con- you know continued to support us from this day and I think basically without Jonathan um you know we wouldn't ha- we wouldn't be having this conversation well, yeah, that's an amazing story. So how much do you think um, you you ended up putting into the company before you were able to get outside investment? So how much money did you spend on like the CRO stuff? So I'll try and, I'll try and do the conversion to dollars um, in my head. So I think personally, I put in about $40,000 myself. And um, I, I didn't mention I'd done an internship at an investment bank in my second year of uni and investment banks um, it, before the financial crisis used to pay stupid money even, even for internships. So I had like $15,000 just from three months of work 
it was like ridiculous. You know, I didn't go into that, that industry, but um, I had some money left over from that. So that was part of it. And then my redundancy and then just some other savings as well. Um, and then I think my dad put in an equal amount. And I think, yeah, Jonathan, uh, Jonathan put in a, I, I won't say, I don't, I don't know whether he'd want me to say or not. Um, he put in a small amount, roughly equivalent. Um, I had some really kind people that just heard about what I was doing and just donated. So like occasionally I'll get, you know, I'll do $1,500. Um, it's amazing if you just talk to people, right? Uh, especially people that are sort of well off, you can just talk to somebody. And if, if, you know, if you can share your excitement with them effectively, all of a sudden, you know, the, you know, you've got a road forwards Um, you know, it's complete opposite to academia, right? Where everything was slowing down. I just, you know, I talked to people and it was like, wow, now I can do this. Well, I can do that. It was it was sort of a revelation, and um, so yeah. What, what, the overall number would probably be about seventy thousand dollars, eighty thousand dollars. So it's not it's not negligible, yeah. But it's it's certainly something to think about, yeah. You know, if you've got, you know, if you're trying to, I don't know, if you're trying to balance the risk, yeah, that might be a bit too much to stomach. But I think for me, um, I, I guess I just wanted to go for it, and I was young. I probably watched a few few too many of those YouTube videos, like motivational speeches and things. So, um, yeah, it was about seventy or eighty thousand dollars. Okay, that's uh, obviously not everybody has that kind of money in their pocket or whatever. But uh, in terms of biotech, I think that's that's very very reasonable. Uh, because I, I asked Celine uh, Haliua of um, of Loyal. She's the founder of Loyal, another uh, uh, longevity biotech company. Uh, asked her uh, how much would it cost uh, for them to get to sort of an investable amount or an investable, you know, sort of company that that would be like get enough data for uh, investors to be able to invest in her company. And she said that that they spent maybe like five hundred thousand dollars. So this was all on like a Twitter thread. So so yours is very reasonable, like uh, in terms of biotech, I feel like. Yeah, just just a couple of points, Nathan. Firstly, in the UK, we're very cheap. Yeah, so we we you know we're very value focused. It's like, oh, why not take an extra risk and save fifty percent? Yeah, um, which you wouldn't do for a helicopter ride, for instance. So that's the first thing. And um, the second thing is Jonathan. Um, I think we were very lucky with Jonathan. So you know, when we went to see him for the first time, he's got Nature Journals like just you know on a on a on a table to the side. Like he's really um, passionate about science. And um, so for, you know, for us to basically open up a new chapter in the scientific story or, you know, open up a, a new page that he wasn't aware of. And, um, you know, it was it was just fascinating for him. Right. It was like a, a new area. And I think there was a lot of good timing. And, um, yeah, you know, maybe it was a year later. It might not have happened. Maybe it was a year earlier. It might not have happened. But, um, you know, it was a good combination. So maybe that eighty thousand dollars was a moment in time. But I think, you know, I think I don't think. I think it would be so dissimilar now, especially with the interest in longevity. I think you could, you could do simple things um, and 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 get and get quite far. Yeah, great, great. So I guess uh, the next question would be, um, maybe you could talk to us about uh, the patent filing process because this is sort of important for you know early stage biotech companies. They're, you know, trying to raise money, but they also want to like have some sort of protection of IP. Maybe you can tell us uh, how how you went about doing that. Yeah, so I, I basically dived in at the deep end, uh, jumped in the deep end, sorry, um, 
not really knowing what I was doing. Uh, I, I, I just I just thought, okay, I should file a US patent um, just because that would be more valuable. Um, and you know, from my naive perspective, um, and I just sort of you know read read some online articles about what you should put in a patent, how to file claims, things like that. Um, but actually, and then I filed the patent. I think there's a US PT, PTO patent very early. Um, but the problem is, you don't know what you don't know, and uh, if you know. Basically, knowing what I know now, you should do some basic checks. So you should just do a check of, you know, what's out there. You know, what's what's the what's the state of the art, right? So you know, what's obvious, what's not obvious. If there's things out there that overlap with what you're doing, you need to sort of just, you know, consider maybe narrow the claims of your patent a bit. Um, you know, so so you just narrow it down to something specific. Um, and yeah, you know, basically, I learned the hard way just by wasting my own money. Um, you know how to how to sort of do patents properly um as far as what what the patent is for is concerned um a patent is yeah obviously it's uh you know you you can protect your intellectual property and make sure somebody isn't ripping you off but by the time you're getting ripped off you must be doing pretty well yeah you you know in biotech you must have got to a quite significant um end point so actually for in the early stages a patent is more about um create creating a question mark for somebody else so you know if somebody else is doing something and um, you you sort of blocking their path it sounds a little bit counterproductive right as far as the overall field is concerned but you're just raising doubts yeah and um, that somebody could pass through this intellectual property space and um, and not have to pay you something uh, whether that's immediately or whether you litigate later yeah so you just sort of you know you just need to plant that flag early and then somebody has got to just try and sort of balance the risk of you doing something so and um, that's one use and then the second use is just you know from an investment perspective if you haven't protected what you have um and somebody gives you a load of money well as far as they're concerned that money is just gonna leak out you know as fast as it as it got in so you, you just need some basic sort of protection and obviously with the money you can sort of revise your patent and make it a bit more watertight it's like you know building building your moat and um, but that's what i would say about patents and i think you know where we are now and um, there's there, by the way there's really efficient strategies so as long as things don't make um you know publications and um, they don't become common knowledge and um, you can do something called withdraw and refile so you, you basically you file and if nothing's happened in the world as, with respect to what you want to do um in, in sort of a year instead of progressing the patent which gets more expensive and expensive you can just quietly withdraw and refile and you still got the, you know the flag is you know you, you planted the flag first um, but nobody basically sees any of this and nobody can see the patent in this first year as well it's a very efficient way of doing things and keeping your um, patent fees down but also keeping your patent life up so you're not losing patent life in the process so um, I, this was this is something i'd recommend but you're, you're taking a risk yeah and like i said we have this tendency I, i'd say in my experience uh, you know we, we take more risk here um, that in the long run might undermine us but we can do things more cheaply Okay, great. Yeah, so so uh, where we left off, uh, you finally were able to get uh, outside investment from Jonathan Milner, and then uh, what happened next? And how did you how did you get from you know that point to where you are now? Uh, what is your company? Sure. Yeah. So um, yeah, we. <laughs> We, um, we got the investment from Jonathan. Obviously, you know, when you get your first investment, hugely exciting time, right? I think it's like, I, I think there's an Elon Musk talk and he talks about this. It's like peak 
optimism, peak happiness. Um, you've got all the money in the bank, right? It's just, you know, the, the, what, you know, it's like, how do I make sure I don't spend this too quickly and waste it? It's almost like this exuberance. Um, and then you just need to get on with the business of actually trying to do something and move it forwards. And that's obviously very difficult. So, um, you know, we started doing experiments and, uh, I think this was 2018. And so I wasn't, you know, I was a mitochondrial biologist. I was a little you know, um, I was blinkered, right. I was guilty of being blinkered. I knew a lot about mitochondria, but I didn't know a lot about outside of mitochondria. So as far as I was concerned, I'd read Aubrey's book. I'd sort of, you know, um, enriched my knowledge of mitochondria subsequent to that in my PhD. Everything seemed to be explained by mitochondria. Yeah, it was, it was a perfect little world. Um, but you know, during during the process um, of sort of you know pushing shift forwards, you know it just occurs to you because you get these questions and people sort of will 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 test you. They'll be like, well, you know, there's, there's this other thing that seems to slow down aging and it hasn't got anything to do with mitochondria. And you know, you, you get into this dynamic where you're trying to say I'm the best and these people are the, are the worst. You know, and it it becomes a competition and that's not that's not the the, the correct way to do things. And um, the correct way to do things is to try and continually um question your assumptions like you know basically audit your hypothesis so my hypothesis was um mitochondrial DNA mutations create bad mitochondria and that drives aging and there's you know there's evidence to support that um, and you know we've basically gone ahead um after the the parkinson cell experiments we'd taken a mouse called the mutator mouse so this this mouse is a premature aging model um, and it, the aging is caused by an increased um, level of mitochondrial DNA mutations. It doesn't mean those mutations cause aging and you and me, um, but it is provocative, right? The, you know, the fact that you, you turn up these mutations, it creates aging in the mice. And I think it was like a nature front page. It was like aging solved or something like that. Yeah, it's just totally out there. Um, so we basically put our drug in this mouse and we got some really nice results. Um, the mice visibly, um, they look younger. So we'd slow that, slowed down their aging phenotypically on the outside. Um, and then whilst I think we were, we were halfway through the study and then we became aware of um, the epigenetic aging clock. So I'm sure most of you on the call um, are familiar. But for those that aren't, um, Steve Horvath um, discovered a robust biomarker of aging in 2013 in, in, in humans to begin with, actually, not in a model organism in humans. And, uh, you know, the accuracy is phenomenal for this biomarker. Like it's uh, good for a biomarker, let alone an aging biomarker. And uh and subsequent to that, Wolf Reich, who's at the Baber Institute in Cambridge, defined a mouse epigenetic aging clock. And for me, this was a perfect opportunity to test my assumptions, you know, to test the idea that mitochondria is the best thing to be targeting as far as intervening and in aging is concerned. So we, um, we basically embedded one of our employees in the lab of Wolf, Wolf Reich's lab at the Baber Institute. So there was no service at the time, right? You couldn't you couldn't do these measurements without the academics you, you know that's how involved it was so we actually um we actually put one of our own people into the lab um to, to get the experiments done because the lab can help us and we, we were able to show that we we could slow down the mouse epigenetic aging clock um by 50 percent, which was a lot i think the i think rapamycin um in a different model it wasn't a, a progeroid model had slowed it by 27 percent. so 50 percent was a lot um so we were like, oh, wow, you know, this is great. We've got something here. Um, but then all of these other waves started crashing, like, you know, positive waves, right? So you, you had um, epigenetic reprogramming where you weren't just slowing down aging. You were, you know, you were, you were doing much more than that. You were reversing aging. 
Um, and it was very comprehensive, right? The clock was, you know, going from 60 years to zero in 20 days. Um, all of the other obvious hallmarks of aging were, were reversed. And, um, you know, this, this is sort of a fantastic technology. Um, and I, I remember I was at the conference Undoing Aging in Berlin. Um, I was there to talk about mitochondria. And then um, I think it's Vittorio Sebastiano um, was there to talk about turn bio and uh, epigenetic reprogramming. I just remember watching his talk and it was fantastic, right? You know, this epigenetic reprogramming and like, you know, the fact you could reverse, yeah, it was just such a watershed moment. The fact you could turn things back, not just prolong the inevitable. And he was, he was presenting and I, one part of me was like, this is amazing, right? You know, this is fantastic. Almost my inner scientist, you know, my personal interest. But then on the shift side, it was like a dagger to the heart. It was like, oh my God, you know, this is just totally um, obsoleted. Uh, you know, my approach with respect to, you know, the summit, which is human intervention and aging. And um, so there's, there's, a, there's an important choice you have to make at that stage, which is, do I continue down the path that I'm on? Because, you know, that's where I've invested um, time and money, um, investors money. Or do I try to, um, you know, do I try to adapt? Yeah. To, you know, do I try to sort of steer what I'm doing in a different direction? And um, because ultimately we just, you know, we want to be working on the best stuff, not just what we worked on before. Yeah. We shouldn't be defined by legacy. Um, so we got, we sort of, you know, we got interested um, in the epigenetic reprogramming side. Um, and in particular, the clocks. So the clocks, I don't think this is, I don't think this is commonplace um, to, to frame it in this way, but the clocks are very useful in two perspectives. So firstly, they, they're a nice readout. So if you're mucking around with some biology in the cell, um, you, you've got an instant readout, or near, near instant readout of aging. You don't have to do a lifespan analysis. So you can play with the Golgi apparatus. What does the clock say? Let's play with the endoplasmic reticulum. What does the clock say? You can get a nice, you know, question and answer um, response like quickly. Um, so that's one thing that clocks do really well. It's like a dial, yeah? You can sort of, you know, check what's going on. But the second thing, which is actually more interesting, is the clock is a window into aging biology itself. So, you know, when Steve Horvath came up with the original clock, it was 353 CPGs. And an obvious question was, well, what are those CPGs? Yeah? So, you know, what's special about them? Um, which genes are they near? And, uh, you know, Steve does actually um, explore this in his 2013 paper. Um, but the, I mean, the answer, the short answer is it's very difficult to make a biological inference from CPGs. Um, you know, but just because CPGs are sort of very distant from the functional level, first of all. Secondly, Steve's clock, if you remove those 353 clock sites, just put them to one side and, and basically run the, the algorithm again, the clock training algorithm. You could basically train an equally accurate clock. So there's this huge degeneracy, right? So it's like there's regularities in epigenetics that aren't confined to those 353 sites. Um, so you can basically just find this regularity popping up elsewhere. But, but the principle, yeah, that you could, you know, the, the clock is a window into aging um, is actually very exciting and, and valid. Um, and so more recently, I think Steve's, he's created, was it the mammalian clock? So this is a conserved clock, every tissue, every mammalian species. And the identity of those CPGs um, is actually, you know, that you can make a better biological inference. And so, you know, we, you know, I was, you know, basically I really got interested in this and we had an intern join us at Shift that was really interested in this. We actually, we were initially interested in single cell clocks, trying to, you know, find out what's going, um, going on below 
the level of the population. So, you know, what's going on in single cells, they're different trajectories. But we sort of, we, 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 we arrived at, you know, the clock as a window into aging biology. Um, and that's sort of where we are now. Now, we might find out that mitochondria are still at the center of the universe, right? It's just, you know, there's, there's, you need epigenetic reprogramming to do something to the mitochondria and that, then they take over. But we might find out it's something completely different. And we also might find out that there's completely new sort of frontiers of aging biology, um, which, is, which is exciting as well. Um, and either outcome, we should do the experiment because if it is mitochondria, we've got way more confidence as far as putting money behind that organelle's concerned. If it isn't mitochondria, we can, you know, basically change course and move forwards in a more productive direction. Uh, what I don't want to be doing at any stage is flogging a dead horse. It, for me, it's, it's it, you know, the, the summit, you know, the Everest is human therapeutic intervention in aging and whatever is the most effective. If I, you know, find myself deviating from that, I need to ask, ask some hard questions of myself. And it's, it's about staying faithful to that. And it's very easy to become unfaithful and, you know, just say, oh, this has been so much effort. Um, I, I'll just settle for less. Um, but I've tried not to, not to, you know, forget, you know, forget what the, what the real goal is. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, staying true to your, to your North Star of your mission to, uh, you know, treat aging as a disease. So I guess maybe one last question before we open it up to the audience. I know we're running a little late. Um, maybe you can just give some advice, uh, some general advice to potential founders, you know, you having gone through this process of, you know, starting a company with your own money, you know, bootstrapping. Uh, if someone else wants to do something similar to what you have done, what would you, what would you say they should avoid? What things should they try and uh, stick? Yeah, so what I would say, first of all, is that, you know, shift bioscience didn't just happen. I didn't, didn't just have the idea, let's start a, um, a longevity biotech company. Um, it, was, it, was, it was more organic. So it was like, look, um, you, know, do I believe, you know, do I have confidence in myself, first of all? Um, and then secondly, you know, are there technologies out there um, that I want to work on and, and push forwards? And the, the, the home for those to begin with was actually an academic institution. It wasn't a company. That, that, that situation might have changed now, but at the time it was what's the best environment to progress this. Um, and then there's, it's, there's, there's, there's a lot of personal questions here. It's like, you know, how much risk am I willing to take? Um, how much am I willing to sacrifice? You know, when I, was, when I was trying to do these cell culture experiments, you know, people going on holidays, people buying houses. I was just renting, renting a flat on the, you know, basically as close to my institute as possible. Um, you know, you, you sort of, you have to decide how important. And I, I think something I haven't covered was I, I almost gave up multiple times, right? You know, there was many points where I was like, is it, is it worth it? You know, it's like everything I've done worth it. And the longer you leave it, right, the more you continue down this path and then it doesn't work out in the end, the more, the more time you've wasted. So there's just a few times where I was like, look, if this, if I don't get this result, yeah, I'm walking away. Yeah. Like I, I gave it my shot. But I'm going to walk away if this doesn't work. But every time I um I I sort of gave myself that binary, yeah, it always worked out. And I was it's like a bittersweet feeling. It's like oh, fantastic, I can keep moving forwards. But then there's this paranoia that further down the line it's going to be super damaging. Yeah? And you know I basically set myself back by the period of time I've been working on this. So you know lots of warning labels here. I'm more risk prone than most. Um, Maybe because, you know, I've got a dad who was an entrepreneur. It just seemed normal to me. Um, so you've got to 
judge this carefully and I, I don't know maybe you know if you're interested in aging and you, you're actually in a position of safety as far as like steady job and stuff like try to sort of build from a position of safety don't you know don't take any risks um like especially on behalf of others if you've got little ones um if if you know you know basically just take a, a measured risk um so yeah if you've got a, if you've got something safe and steady just you, you know use that as a way to work you know you, you leverage that to basically work on this um which is where you want to go in the future um and secondly i just sort of i'd characterize this field slightly differently from say a normal biotech or a normal industry um i think it's it's half it's half you know biotech and you know the, the, you know successful commercialization all that stuff but i think it's half a, an expedition um you know quite like the everest expedition you know it's like a new frontier everybody's trying to summit this you know, sorry everybody's trying to climb this summit and there's you know there's a lot of deaths along the way but you know you find out new information um, everybody's really trying to get to the top of it and you know the the view from the top is just you know it's so exciting right the reality um you know just imagine you wake up in the morning and you can decide to reset your age and um, to something like you know mid-20s um you know like you know that's, that's it's just astonishing right and the reality is you know what would you do with that extra 30 years right you know you know like you know I, I, I tend to think the people that are going to do this, they're people that are going to love life, right? And they want an extra 30 years to do something in particular. So, for instance, I like flying drones, yeah? So <laughs> I sort of joke with my drone flying friends. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm doing this day job in longevity so I can just fly drones more. Yeah, I could fly drones for an extra 30 years. Um, so, you know, for me, like, there's a, there's a real excitement on the other end as well, which is which is tangible. Obviously, I work on it a lot, but... I think, you know, the reality is really exciting. I think people should be feeling that by now. Well said. Yeah, totally true. Okay, Daniel, thank you so much for sharing your, your journey with us. It's just amazing what you've been able to do. And uh, it was definitely not easy hearing, I guess, uh, you know, you sharing your experience with all the risks that you had to take and all the times that you came close to, to quitting. I think that's that's really important for people to hear that it's, you know, it's a tough, tough uh, journey for entrepreneurs, you know, biotech founders, especially in longevity. So um, with that being said, uh, let's just open it up for questions and then I'll come back to you later and we can, we can close up the room with some rapid fire questions. But uh, let's start uh, taking some questions from the audience. Uh, you can raise your hand if you have any questions for Daniel. If not, I have a bunch of questions for him. <laughs> So I have a question, um, Daniel, very interesting story. Thanks for uh, going into all that detail. Right at the end here, you mentioned that you came close to giving up many times. Can you share what was the closest that you came to really truly throwing the towel and what kept you from giving up? Okay, so the first time, um, yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like uh you know it sounds like i'm um, you know there's a certain degree of weakness but it's it's just it's just i think it's it's mostly looking at others right so there's no no one else going through your journey and so it's looking at others is particularly um you know troublesome as far as like you know, te te you know testing yourself so i was i'd done a load of, load of bioinformatics on the computer yeah? basically trying to predict what the cell line was doing and uh i think the prediction was um it was unfolded protein response yeah so um, there's, there's a lot of ways to activate this pathway. Um, so we just, we, we got a bunch of molecules together and, 
you know, we, we basically started treating cells and, uh, you know, we, we got zero the first time, right? And you know, these are like four-month experiments, um, like full-time. Uh, and that includes the weekends, right? You have to go in and feed your cells at the weekend. Um, they're like little babies, but you don't get any cuteness and uh, you don't get anything, right? They're just, they're just cells in a dish. Um, so you have to keep these things going. Like I said, there's contamination. So somebody that doesn't care as much about their experiments um, will, you know, they'll lapse and there'll be, you know, there'll be sort of things floating in your cell culture. So, uh, you know, that happened. That that didn't actually, that didn't present too much of a problem for me. I sort of soldiered through. Um, but but it was when, when I've been testing loads of things that activate this pathway and I just got zero and zero. And I think I just said that this last molecule, which was called 2-deoxyglucose, a 2-deoxyglucose, which is a glucose derivative. Um, it was like one of the ones I hadn't tested. And um, and I just said, look, um, like we were testing pool populations, but there's there's variation within pool populations. So every cell in your dish isn't necessarily the same. There's always, you know, it's quite often noted that different clones behave differently. So I basically cloned this cell line. Um, so I was running like 10 times larger than I normally would. It was basically like do or die, right? This, this is even going to work or it's not. And, uh, and um, yeah, basically I did the experiments, you collect all the samples and there's this, there's this instrument called a pyrosequencer and it gives out it's something called a pyrogram. So it looks, it actually looks like a heartbeat on one of those uh, hospital monitors and you can, you can watch the signal come out in real time. And I knew exactly the shape that, that this signal needed to be right if I was going to get something to work. And I don't know if you've ever had this feeling, but like sort of getting the adrenaline and you can hear your heart, yeah. Like that's how that's how much it mattered because for me this was a life decision, and it was only one clone, right? It was only one clone in the first experiment, and 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 a pooled population on the on the, you know, one clone and a, a separate pooled population, they moved to wild type, right? And it was just this amazing feeling. It's like you know you sort of get shivers with with music, um. But like I said, it's bittersweet, and I was like, oh god, I've got to spend another three years doing this, right? And then you know, how, how damaging is that going to be if, you know, there's so many reasons these things won't become real world technologies, you know, in clinical development, if there's any risks and stuff like that. So that, I think that was the most um, pivotal moment, that one there. I think there's sort of secondary moments where um, basically running, almost running out of money. It's like, you know, um, do I take on even more money from people that I, you know, have relationships with? Um, basically risking their money right i might not, might not be able to give it back um or do i press ahead and i think you know there was there was a decision to basically go ahead with um some experiments this was just before jonathan showed up and it was it, it was these parkinson cells right can we get rid of uh, mitochondria in these uh, bad mitochondria in these parkinson cells and it failed the first time again um, and i think we only had enough money for the the second experiment and it, it worked the second time just really stupid reasons there's so many things that go wrong in uh, bioscience labs that are just stupid things like the temperature was wrong or you know um the reagent went off because you left it you know you left it um an extra week those sorts of things um but those were the two but that, yeah that moment at the pyro sequencer that was you know that was the do or die moment for me yeah thanks uh quite quite a story Okay, are there any other questions in the room? No, if not, okay, then maybe I'll, I'll ask Daniel some questions. Um, so right now, uh, 
Are you guys still doing CRO work or have you expanded to a lab? Um, so initially we, we, we went just 100% with CROs. So we, um, we, there was a company called Total Scientific that's become um, our accelerator in Cambridge. So very high quality CRO. So not, not just taking orders, like really engaging in the experiments, making sure that you're not cutting corners, those sorts of things. So they were actually fantastic at the beginning and, um, you know, just beyond the call of duty. And um, for our, our animal experiments, uh, we, we use the Jackson Laboratory um, in Bar Harbor, Maine. They just opened a CRO facility just when we needed, needed one. Um, and they were fantastic as well. But they were basically, that was, you know, we were one of their first, first projects. Um, but they, they did a great job. Um, but with CROs, because it's, you know, because you're the one that cares the most about your experiments, um, you're just going to, you're going to put in the extra 10%, you know, you're going to go 110% to sort of do all the checks. A CRO is never going to be, you know, that, that interested. I'm not saying CROs aren't good or anything, but you know, there's there's always that last ten percent that they're not going to do right because they've got lots of different people. And so, um, I was advised by Simon Westbrook that you should always go visit your CROs, meet them in person because if you're just the other end of an email, yeah, you're not really, you know, you don't, there's, there isn't that human connection. If you can sort of build a relationship and then you can then progress from that to emails, yeah, but they know there's a human on the other side. That tends to be much more successful. And it, and it was the case. So we just had a great interaction by sort of following this. And um, we then we then um, won a competition. So this was a startup accelerator called Accelerate Babram. So the Babram Research Campus is a great life science uh, campus outside Cambridge. And I think it's one of the biggest uh, biotech clusters around Cambridge. Um, and we, we got a check for £10,000. And we also got our own space for the first time. So um, we were able to do our own experiments. We didn't actually do very much during the accelerator period um, but having the facility was great and we could sort of package package compound and send it to collaborators and things like that and more recently with covid um, basically just labs labs became much more restricted and um, we we so happened to basically do a lot of bio we we, we, we sort of shifted and um, forgive the pun to more bioinformatic experiments it was basically around clocks and you know what you can do with the public data and stuff like that and so we sort of took a period um that was separate you know not in the lab anymore um but more recently we we've just um we've just uh, got hold of some lab space and there's a all hands on deck experiment um that's very similar to uh, Shinya Yamanaka and the Yamanaka factors so it's it's like an aging version of what Shinya Yamanaka did so this is an all hands on deck experiment i think i might even be brought into the lab because it's such a big bottleneck like if we get this experiment done everything's good right afterwards like on on different fronts i'm not saying like you know we're better or worse than anybody else but if we can do this one thing and do it well it's just going to be great so i think we're all going to go into the lab for a period hopefully i can you know keep everything else um on top of everything else in, in the meantime but um yeah we're going to be we're actually going to be in the the milner institute so my investor uh, Jonathan has got a, an institute called the Milner Institute, so I'm um, very lucky to be there. But obviously, um, you know, I think I think we we had a door open for us there. Yeah, great. Maybe I, we can ask a couple questions about uh, getting investment. So, yeah, the first time you went second, to, sorry, uh, sorry to uh, interrupt here, we are very close to the top of the hour. So. Uh, Daniel, do you have time for more? I mean, uh, other people, the people in the room might not have time. So 
uh, just just wondering um, how much we're going to go over here. Um, yeah, Robert, I've got as uh, much time as you need from me. Okay, so uh, Nathan, maybe we can just uh, remind people now. That, so this is at the, we're at the top of the hour. Uh, I guess the you know lightning ground crushes that kind of stuff we'll do later. Um, we are doing this again uh, next week also, where we will have um, Mark Berniger and colleagues from uh, Maximon in Switzerland talking about their um, work to try to help create longevity companies like uh, Daniel's here. And um, just uh, wanted to thank everyone in the room. If you have other commitments after, uh, thanks for joining us. You can follow us on the app here on Twitter. You can also follow the Longevity Show account on Twitter and the website, longevitybiotechshow.com and Nathan's newsletter, longevitymarketcap.com for further updates. Um, I think I will leave the, uh, I'll leave the stream running and the recording going at least uh, a few more minutes. What do you think? Yeah, totally. All right. Uh, Okay, carry on. <laughs> awesome. Um, maybe I'll just get one question in and then we can get to uh, David's question in the audience. Uh, so Daniel, when you were in, uh, pitching your investor, how, how, uh, Jonathan Milner, how did that go like the first time? Because he, as you said before, was not uh, really uh, like an aging or a longevity investor to begin with. So. Uh, maybe you can maybe share some tips about uh, other to, to other founders who might be pitching uh, non-traditional and what I mean is non-longevity investors. Yeah, sure. So it was actually it was more than that. So uh, Jonathan had a policy which was no therapeutics. Yeah. So um, he, he he invested in things that were more platform technologies and therapeutics are very expensive, um, very risky. Um, and they tend to need a lot more money uh, than sort of angel investment investment level. Um, so I basically just taught him scientist scientist to scientist um, uh, at the beginning, and uh, it was just a scientific conversation to begin with. Um, and then, yeah, like I said, he said, "Look, very interesting. Why don't you do a bit more work?" Um, and then it was just it was sort of just a conversation from that point onwards. Um, and we were talking to other people at the time, but it was it was mostly this, this uh, conversation with Jonathan. Um, and I think he's, he made a few allowances. I don't know. Maybe there's something that he, he saw in me. Um, I don't know. Right. But I was I certainly wasn't a polished pitcher. Um, I wasn't you know polished in any way, to be honest. I just knew that I wanted to do this and I was determined to do so. Um, so I think if that can come free, I think. You know, if, if you're an angel and you can see somebody that's just trying to do like they're, they're trying to crack the problem from every angle and going beyond the call of duty, yeah, you, it doesn't matter if the person's polished or not. You know, you know, you've got someone who, you know, you, you can work with. Um, but then, yeah, since then, obviously, there's there's a lot you learn, right? Just talking to people and what works and what doesn't work. Um, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm by no means a finished product at the moment, but I'm, I've, I've, I've definitely come a long way in, in my own in my own opinion. Yeah, great. Um, let's get to some audience questions here. Uh, David, what's what's your question? Uh, hi, uh, hi, thanks, thanks. Uh, hi, Daniel. I, I 
Daniel and I know each other from from before. These days, we don't get to meet each other anymore, so it's nice to nice to say hello. Um, what I my question was really about, um, you know, because I think it relates to what you were saying about um, investors, and I think I think this is a particular thing for UK investors. I think UK investors are kind of wary of drug development because, you know, there's no revenue coming in, and they're you know, it's all about developing IP and a long-term payoff and that's kind of not what many UK investors are are ready for um I, I just wanted to kind of like ask you about you know your like IP strategy and how you you know how you kind of get over those those problems and I, I'm, I'm sorry if I, I missed this, the first half of this so I, you might have already said this already but just if you, if you get to hear your thoughts on it Thanks, David. Yeah, good to hear from you. And I, I remember, I remember us having a chat some time back. Um, yeah, good to have you on the call. So, yeah, IP. I touched upon this a little bit earlier. So, um, basically, I just filed IP um, like it was, you know, like it was something I did every day. You know, with no prior experience, I just filed a USPTO patent. Um, but then you quickly, you know, I quickly found out that there was prior art that made it. You know, things that I was claiming obvious. Um, so then I had to go back to the drawing board. We decided to involve people. Um, so, you know, that was the first thing. And you, you need some IP, right? If you want to go the commercial route, IP is just necessary. Unless, you know, there's always exceptions, right? But in, in the most part, that's necessary. Um, and, yeah, what I touched on earlier was, um, you know, IP serves a few purposes. Um, I think naively you think that it's to defend against people trying to copy you or rip you off. But actually it's more about raising a question mark and um, so that you know people that you know it costs them less to remove that question mark by interacting with you than it does to try and go around you and um, so that's you know that's sort of how you can build value um, and then isn't, isn't really sorry daniel isn't like it's basically your product isn't it ip in a way if you have yeah, that, yeah, yeah, you're not yeah. getting revenue from anything else then it's the ip that's your your products the way i think about it and um correct yeah yeah, and I suppose the question is, how do you best develop that in a way that attracts investors to think, yeah, okay, this IP is worth putting, you know, with, you're worth investing in to get better value out of your IP? Yeah, so firstly, I'm not the expert, and there, there's plenty of experts around Cambridge, like IP specialists, yeah, so they can, they usually have a specific expertise um, that's relatively close to what you're doing. They can basically provide the translation, yeah, look, this is what you're doing. And this is how we would protect it. And this, this is what might be useful. They don't necessarily know everything about the investment front. That's for you to, you know, just get feedback from the real world about what, what people find valuable and what they don't find valuable. Um, but yeah, you, you take their advice. Um, you talk to lots of investors about, you know, what they want to see. Just try and sort of you know, walk the fine line. Also on the costs, I mentioned earlier, you can do this file and refile strategy. So, sorry, withdraw and refile strategy. So, you file a patent um, and in the first year there's no details that are published um, and if, it, if you if you if you one year down the line and nothing's changed right as far as your your tiny part of the scientific world is concerned you can quietly withdraw that patent and refile and you've still got priority over anybody else but you you, you don't run these escalating patent costs so we've been able to keep costs relatively low that way i don't think we're going to be able to do that from now on but historically that's what we did Thanks, Daniel. You're welcome. Okay, next question, Common. 
Um, hello. Um, thank you, Daniel. Um, this was um, this was very interesting. I um, I was wondering. You described um, uh, in many ways how you've interacted um, in, in the kind of greater Cambridge area uh, with um, labs, with um, incubators, with um, uh, fellow scientists. Um, and I was wondering whether you have found more generally the uh, Cambridge uh, community or Cambridge area um, or Britain more generally uh, receptive to the kind of work you were doing both uh, among scientists uh, for the support that they could give you or deny you um, in uh, longevity related research and uh, also amongst investors uh, in so far of course as, as you are able to compare. Um, this is a really good question, Carmen. So I've got a good, I've got a good story to tell here. So um, Cambridge, UK, it's uh, it's sort of you know it's, it, you know it has this romance, right? It's like you know Isaac Newton um, was in Cambridge, uh, Stephen Hawking from Cambridge, and um, it's really a very purist place. It's like science above all else. You know, it's you know you lock yourself in a cave for four months, come up with that mathematical equation, and you will be celebrated. It's that sort of place. Um, now it, there is an entrepreneurial spirit as well but it's really very science dominated yeah it's like that is that is what's celebrated and i i sort of you know um there was there was a there was a point in uh, sort of the the history of shift where i you know i i sort of got frustrated right by the response from people just in the cambridge area so cambridge is a very small place and um, but you know exciting place but a small place and um it, there was always this itching feeling right if you're really trying to do something where's the best place full stop right not the best place near your house you know where's the best place full stop and you know the west coast of the states as far as density of you know uh, longevity investors and interest is concerned um is unsurpassed so there's uh aubrey de grey for instance he, he he set up in cambridge to begin with but he he you know he moved out to the west coast and he's in mountain view now and so i sort of basically went on the same westward journey um uh, I said, I think I said to my wife, I was like, look, we basically, I wanted to raise money to do a clinical trial. Yeah. And it just wasn't happening in the UK. And the risk level was too high. There wasn't, there wasn't a VC equivalent of Jonathan. Yeah. And Jonathan just couldn't do this on his own budget. So we were trying to find somebody that was like the American version of Jonathan. And so and, and to, to Jonathan's credit, he basically said, okay, let's, let's do it. Right. Let's just go out there. And I was out there three months um, and I took my wife with me um, and, you know, we basically, we packed up our whole house and put it into storage. So we didn't, we basically didn't have a house anymore. We just had all our stuff in a storage container um, because we knew that it was going to cost a lot to rent on the West Coast, quite an expensive place. We didn't realize how expensive um, we ended up just in like very tiny, tiny accommodation. Um, but yeah, I, I basically went out there to try <laughs> to try and get the big money, and uh, and uh, uh, naively I just thought it's America, everything's bigger. I'll just ask for more, and um, you know, just put a zero on the end of what I was asking for in the UK, and that'll be enough. And I think, I think what was it? I, I went to Indie Bio, and there's a guy called Arvand Gupta, and uh, I just. I just um, asked him for 25 million, right? And we were nowhere near um, sort of the level that, you know, we, we would receive 25 million. Um, but I just said, like, we need a clinical trial. I just need 25 million. And uh, he, he just walked out of the room and everybody else was apologetic. 
Um, but then I basically realised that you can raise the money, right? But you've got to up your game to raise the money. There's plenty of competition. It's not just that there's more money there. It's not like more is more. Um, so I found that found that out quick, pretty quickly. You need to perform on many more levels um, when you're raising that sort of money in the states. Um, like I, I sort of had to dress better uh, to get my hair cut a bit. Um, it seems like superficial, but I was treated differently, right? You know, before and after. Um, and yeah, basically there was just there was just more there was more investors willing to take bigger risks out there. Um, but I wasn't in a position right to connect with those sums of money. Um, so I, I actually spent a lot of time quite quite upset because it was just you know I think the learning experience was so steep. And my my wife was with me and she was like you know she was coming um, we we're going up and down the west coast in in, in, a, in a car and she was holding the sat nav for me. She was, you know, she's doing things like just trying to help me out on all fronts. And I was just getting no after no. And actually, the best thing that came out of the whole trip was uh, an, an XPRIZE event. So it was it was the XPRIZE for longevity event. And uh, I've been invited to this. And uh, basically, a bunch of us in the room, it was in Los Angeles. And uh, one of the first questions was, you know, um, you know, what do we need, right, to, to move this forward? What should the prize be? And somebody was like, we need an aging biomarker. And I just put my hand up and I said, look, um, Steve Horvath came up with the clock. Like nobody else had, you know, put their hand up. I said, look, Steve Horvath's come up with this. And Steve Horvath was sitting in the room and he said, oh, I'm actually here. And I was like, that's fantastic. Steve, you should take, you should take over. <laughs> um, and then I basically got chatting with Steve about the mitochondria and his clock. Like we'd seen there being movement of the clock with mitochondria and he'd pick things up. And uh, basically he was excited and he, he linked us up with one of his collaborators in the UK called uh, Ken Raj, um, who is he's just a fan, he's like a diamond in the dust. This guy Ken Raj, fantastic individual, um, maybe not an accurate representation, but he's like the Robin. To, you know, if Steve Horvath's Batman, Ken is Robin. Um, but yeah, fantastic guy, and uh, just to basically start having a conversation with these people that have just been doing it a lot longer than you, much wiser than you, um, in my opinion. And it just just means you can be focusing on the right things at the right time. Um, but that was the best thing out of the trip. So I went there to get lots of money for a clinical trial. But I came back with a much better plan moving forwards. And it turned out that the plan that we wanted to, you know, basically the better plan didn't require 25 million. It's actually something we can do still with relatively small, sum, not, you know, it's not, it's not a small sum of money, but we could do this in the UK. It's sort of in the sweet spot of what we can do in the UK at the moment. When it does come to a clinical trial, um, it's just a, it's just a, um, a size thing with the states. It's just there is a bigger investor market, and yeah, if you want to do trials, it's a better place to raise the money. Um, unless you can de-risk to the point that you know UK VCs come on board, but the, the states will always be willing to take that bigger risk. In my experience, thank you. That's uh, that's very interesting. Thank you. You're welcome, Carmen. Uh, Daniel, if I can ask, how many people were at that XPRIZE event? Um, I think there was about 30 of us in the room. Um, so, I mean, I think I think others were aware of Steve Horvath. So maybe I was just, you know, I was just super enthusiastic. You, you know, you always get that one individual that's just always putting their hand up and, and everybody's rolling their eyes. So, um, you know, I, I put my hand up. But there was, I think that Laura Deming was there. 
um Peter Diamondus, you know, he was there. Um it was it was it was sort of you had to pinch yourself, right? And I just didn't want to say anything stupid. That was my main priority. Like, you know, don't put your foot in it and then you've got to, you know, carry that for the rest of your life. So uh, I just tried to sort of um be yeah, be good. Aubrey was there, yeah, it was it was a fantastic, fantastic event. Yeah, so one of the things that I, I took away from your talk that seems really like an important theme in your journey was was the um, the importance of having mentors, right? So it, it seemed like you, you have all these people in your network helping you out. Um, so for other people out there, like uh, founders who don't have a network, who are just coming in, can you suggest or maybe do you have some ideas for them, how they can get mentors or or people in their network who can you know be in their corner. Yeah, I think I think there's some fantastic shortcuts. You know, basically the the network is something that was pre-built, and I was able to walk through a door that might have taken others, you know, I don't know, five years, right, to to get to, to, to walk through that door. So I I completely acknowledge I was lucky, but if if you have a card and you don't play it right, you know, that's, it's not about, you know, being proud of yourself and doing twice as much as the next person. We just, we're trying to get something done. Yeah. Let's just play all the cards we've got. Um, if you had more cards than me, I would expect you to play them. And um, these days you've got some fantastic shortcuts. So I think Y Combinator, you know, basically it's, uh, you know, you go in there, Y Combinator is basically plugged into everybody. They try to help to the extent that, you know, um, you know, you want help and, and um, I, I think that's actually that's actually a fantastic development that I think basically Y Combinator didn't have a longevity strand when I set up and I just didn't think, for, yeah, I had a network, so I didn't feel the need to go on that program. Um, but if you don't have a network, yeah, like I think Y Combinator has a longevity strand. There's something, there's a Canadian um, uh, version of Y Combinator called Creative Destruction Labs, which I actually, I, I participated in this. So it's like a decentralized Y Combinator. Um, based around an academic paper where they try and distill the principles of Silicon Valley and put that into a program. Um, and that's a fantastic program. You basically get thrown into a room. I think there's like, you know, 30, like the, the people in the room have to be able to invest money. So they just come thick and fast about, you know, why you're doing is what you're doing is wrong, um, how you need to improve. And then you, you basically part of the program, you take on free mentors for three months and you update them. And that's, that's fantastic. Um, more locally in the UK, there's a there's a new I call it the Cambridge Y Combinator, so it's called Start Code on, and it's a it's it's a bioscience focused um, accelerator. So we've basically got a local option. So you know, if I had started this later, I would have almost inevitably gone on Start Code on. Um, so I'd basically recommend doing that if you don't have a network. Um, but if you do have a network, obviously just make the most of them. So you know, I made the most of my friends and family. Um, and then, you know, they, they introduced me to their networks. So if you're trying to do something and somebody, you know, uh, you have a good relationship with somebody, of course, they're going to try and help you. Um, but if you know there's something you're missing, you might have to do some cold calls and, you know, try and reach out directly to people. Um, I think there's a Bristol program. I can't remember what the name is, but one of the, 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 the parts of the program is um, get a hundred meetings yeah you just need to just get a hundred meetings just try and reach out to people get as many of those as possible and there's actually been some success stories out of this bristol program like there was a major acquisition and um, i think it was a diabetes um, type project 
Um, but that's absolutely necessary. Getting a hundred meetings, and it's you know, for, especially for investors, yeah, it's like you have to take a hundred investors, and ten, ten actually get back to you, and only one of them closes. That sort of thing. So yeah, you've got to you've got to be able to have a fixed skin. Uh, uh, can I just say that 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 program's um, iCure, and we we did that for magnitude biosciences, and uh, yeah, it's really cool. It's not it's some, you can you get basically twenty k. To, you get an early career researcher gets twenty thousand pounds to no or thirty thousand pounds to travel the world in two months to talk to as many people as possible, um, just to basically to test your value propositions and and yeah, and it's, where it's, your end users are. So it's it's been it was really good. And I've I've actually met a couple of people that are basically funded to go on these world tours, talking to people. So he just came to talk to me, and it was just a fantastic chat because he you know the, the guy didn't have any. Uh, responsibilities apart from just talk to me and learn as much and like soak up as much as possible like a sponge um so i think that's a very forward thinking program um i don't know if there's any equivalents that you know you know about nathan but um that's a really good one i can i can sort of link that later i think it's based on a u.s um program actually in the first place so i'm not sure what that original program was called though Okay, yeah, we don't want to take credit. We don't want to take credit. We don't deserve it. Yeah. So, Daniel, that's very interesting. Uh, funny you mentioned Creative Destruction Lab. <clears throat> Excuse me, I, just, I caught up with somebody over in the Vancouver uh, location, and and uh, I wasn't aware that um, that they were operating quite in that way. So maybe I'll follow up with you afterwards. Uh, I have a related question to this. You're talking about mentorship networks and so on. What would you say to people that don't have entrepreneurs in their family? And probably the majority of people uh, out there, you know, they, they come from, uh, they went into research or, or they, they pursued some sort of uh, academic routes. And uh, they, you know, many of the people in their family around them are, are risk averse amongst their family and friends would be discouraging them from taking chances and so on. And you, you yourself mentioned that, um, if you can, uh, you know, if you could do something that is a, a measured risk and you're not putting, uh, you know, you're not un unnecessarily uh, putting others at risk that, that you should do that. So what would you say to those like uh, that essentially I'm asking, like, how much of an influence was your father? And what would you say to those that don't have that kind of influence in your life? Yeah, so I mean, my my dad's a double-edged sword because he's my dad, right? The the out, outward impression is that he's holding my hand, and you know, I'm just I'm the young face, right? Which you know, I think in Silicon Valley, it's better to be have a young face, um, and then you know, he's he's basically holding my hand the whole time. Um, but you know, he's he's a great guy, right? And he he's you know he's he's really sort of we've managed this relationship very well. Um, there's been very testing times, by the way, where it's like I have to say to him. You know, like we've got a, if we can't reach an agreement here, right, we're going to have to basically, you know, it bleeds over into the family relationship. Like there's been some testing times, but that's been fine. Now, if you don't have somebody like that in the family, um, which is most families, um, I've actually got a very simple answer, which is go work for somebody, right, that's doing something exciting because they're sort of taking the risk. I mean, as long as there's a job opening, but go work for that person and just learn and learn as much as you can, basically on somebody else's risk and you know with startups sometimes they work sometimes they don't work but you're gonna you're gonna learn so much so fast um that way and i think a lot of the most interesting projects 
these days you know obviously i'd say 50 50 half in academia half in some of these companies so just go work for a longevity company sooner rather than later i think that's the best shortcut yeah and uh if you're looking for a job in the longevity industry there is a website called longevitylist.com <laughs> so uh, if you're interested yeah just check it out there's all sorts of different jobs in the longevity industry it's not all biology and pipetting stuff there's tons of computational stuff business development so um i encourage people who are interested to go check it out event uh event sorry i'm gonna pronounce this word Evgeny. Oh, hi guys. Um, hi, Daniel. Thank you for your talk. Um, maybe I missed it. I, I, I think David already asked this question. Uh, am I right that you 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 discovered this um, substance you use to control copy number of mitochondrial DNA uh, in the MRC during a postdoc, right? Yeah, that's correct. So, I mean, the the the, the discovery was basically here's a, a cell line called A549. How do we distill what it's doing? And we, we basically distilled it down to a pathway and a molecule. But um, basically, this pathway unfolded protein response. Um, you can take a bunch of things to activate that, but not all of them do anything. Not all of them have an effect on the mitochondrial DNA, only some of them, one of them being 2-deoxyglucose. And, and to be honest, apart from that that information, we know nothing, right? It's a big black box. And so there's just, you know, when you've got a giant black box, it's just dying out for additional research. You know, what's the target? Things like that. Um, and, you know, my original research was in rare mitochondrial diseases. And I wanted to go into aging. So, you know, I went into Parkinson's and aging, things like that. We basically did a lot of work um, that was novel. Um, and we, we we came across things that were novel and, and those are our, you know those are our discoveries and um, so there is this you know, there is this sort of fine line like how close between your original project and where you're going right and does that raise a question mark with investors and um, but this is something we've been able to to, to manage so i'd like to ask when you discovered this uh, substance uh, did you have any ip problems with the mrc because if if it's discovered in MRC, they should have some right for the molecule, or for the for the proteins involved. I don't know. How how did it work? Yeah. So the the MRC um, they have rights to the original molecule, but that's that's not what we that's not what we're developing. We're developing something uh, that's that's not obvious, right? You know, obviously there's this thing going on which is a distillation, but what we've done is not obvious, and um, and that's that's our innovation. So. You know that that is ours, um, and that's that's you know that's something that we can we can protect ourselves. Oh, great! So so basically, you you discovered the pathway in the MRC, and then you you decided, oh, I I will develop an, like another um, another inhibitor or or whatever it is to affect the pathway in a way, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. So there's a big black box. We've been able to. It's like battleship. Yeah, we've been able to strike the battleship. Um, but we don't really know, the, you know where the rest of the ship is. Yeah? So basically when there's a black box, it's ripe for discovery, ripe for novel findings. And so we just, you know, for me, that was the next step, right? Let's try and reverse engineer this technology a bit more. So we have a therapeutic prospect, which is something we didn't have and the MRC didn't have.
Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a, another question is about um, what diseases are actually linked to mitochondrial copy number, DNA copy numbers? Yeah, good question. So, um, so the the disease, which was the model system that I worked in, which was MELAS, um, this is, it, it's not copy number, it's, it's actually the, the, it's copies with a mutation versus wild type copies. So it's, it's the relative proportions of those. And if you have more of the copy with the mutant, you, you, you suffer the disease. Um, so uh, MELAS is one example. There's, there's other um, diseases. I think three or four others. I think NARP is another one. Um, LHON, these, these are all acronyms that I forgot exactly what they mean. But um, so, and then, then you've got diseases that are caused um, by nuclear defects in mitochondrial genes. So 99% of the genes in the mitochond- well, that make up a mitochondria live in the nucleus. And that's a very different, um, it's a different genetic system, right? So the mitochondrial genetic systems, thousands of copies, uh, mass redundancy, um, not much repair, but you can degrade what's damaged and then you can promote what's undamaged and replicate that. Um, but nuclear defects are much more different and they're you know, therapeutically, it's, you know, they're more amenable to things, you know, like CRISPR and uh, things like that. So the particular type of uh, disease that I'm working on, which is like, it's called heteroplasmy, a mixture of mutant and wild type, it requires a very specific tool. And there's only, a, a, there's a, yeah, there's a few diseases that operate like this, but there's lots of mitochondrial diseases that operate in different ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, at shift, it, it turns out that we've actually come full circle. So the mitochondrial therapeutic, which is, you know, it's, it's something that we've got and we want it to reach a conclusion, but it it's not what's going to carry us to, you know, the most effective human, inter- you know, human therapeutic intervention um, in aging, but it will do something in MELAS. Yeah. So we, you know, that's where it was, you know, the, the under, underlying findings, that's, they were born in MELAS. And so it makes sense that, you know, you'd go back to MELAS or things that are similar to MELAS. So that's, that's where we see the um that therapeutic sort of arriving um yeah at some at some stage in sort of preclinical development yeah thank you and also uh, i'm just wondering what's the effect of this um mutation um, dna mitochondrial dna copies this mutation on the normal agent so uh, it's clear that uh, they participate in particular diseases but do you have any um, idea how this mutation, uh, mutated copies, affects normal aging or normal functions of um, organs? Yeah, we asked this experiment, um, sorry, we asked this question in a mouse experiment by using the epigenetic aging clock. So we um, we basically treated uh, these mutator mice. That are ba- it's basically a, an exacerbated version of mitochondrial disease, but you get a premature aging phenotype. So we treated these mice with our drug and we showed interestingly that this is sorry two-part answer so interestingly the mice don't show accelerated aging according to the clock so whatever is going on in the outside is an acceleration of the phenotype of aging right not epigenetic aging so that's the first thing um but 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 our therapeutic seems to slow down that phenotypic aging on the outside but it also slowed down the clock now we don't know if this has got anything to do with mitochondria it might be because you know we're affecting pathways that have an overlap with caloric restriction, and that's why we're affecting the clock. Um, so we're not we're not sure exactly what's going on there. Um, another another thing that I would say is that sort of mitochondria keep popping up 
you know, in unexpected places. So Tony Whiskeray, um, with, you know, sort of young blood or young blood factors, um, he, he did a, I think he did a single cell transcriptome analysis of um, heterochronic parabiosis. So basically stitching up a young mouse to an old mouse, trying to figure out how it is that the old mouse gets rejuvenated. And when you do an enrichment on the pathways that are activated in the old mouse that basically becomes younger, they're mitochondrial pathways, yeah? So it's like the that the mitochondria driving the rejuvenation, you know, whatever's going on this young blood, it's it's manifesting functionally as mitochondria. That's very unexpected. I mean, it was nice for me to see. It's like, oh, great. You know, the, I, I, didn't, I didn't do that work, but I just happened to be positioned well. But that's very interesting. And um, secondly, there's a, a very recent paper um, from Steve Horvath, Ken Raj, um, basically doing an unbiased clustering of methylation data from all the different mammals and the tissues. And it's interesting that um, I think it's lifespan and aging actually form two different clusters. Um, and it looks like the lifespan, you know, the cluster looks much more like, you know, uh, some things that are going on the cytosol and then the aging cluster looks more like things that are going on the nucleus, which is basically our cellular computer. So I think there is a place for mitochondria. We just, we just basically it's early days um, mapping that landscape. And like I said, right, we might find out after a, a bunch of work that we were working on the right thing all along. Um, but, you know, where, where we started, we just didn't have the confidence um, to, you know, to keep moving forwards. It's, there's just a timing issue here. We want to we wanna basically sweep the landscape now uh, and make sure this is the best lever. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, it's very interesting just to follow on to uh, Evgeny's questions, but also you just mentioned something, Daniel, which maybe I misheard or, or maybe you can clarify. You said that you had some mouse models that were showing phenotypic aging without the aging of the clock. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So, if, I mean, I, if you go back to the hallmarks of aging, um, I, I call it like base camp. Like we use an Everest analogy. analogy. Um, the hallmarks of aging is like base camp. It's it's a great framework. There's finite types of damage, and like like a vehicle, yeah, you you remove that damage and you maintain function. Um, but nobody, had, you know, if you know, it, one way that you can interrogate those um, different hallmarks is let's perturb senescent cells and see what the clock does, or let's perturb telomeres and see what the clock does, and let's perturb mitochondria. Um, so I think at the time, senescent cells had been tested, telomeres had been tested, they didn't have any effect on the epigenetic aging clock. You know, it, was, it was very interesting, this unbiased biomarker wasn't affected by these hallmarks. So it's not to say they're not involved in aging, it's just they're not involved in epigenetic aging. And sort of an open goal was, what about the mitochondria? Yeah, so what happens when we perturb the mitochondria and um, do we see anything so you know our perturbation is mitochondrial dna mutations so you look in this mouse yeah this mouse has premature aging like you know it looks old in multiple measures on the on the outside and inside but according to the clock it's it's exactly the age it should be yeah and um, it doesn't show any acceleration and um, so again it doesn't mean that mitochondrial dna mutations don't contribute to aging it just means that it's not contributing to epigenetic aging. And we don't know like what's, you know, epigenetic aging might be 10% of all of aging, right? Or it might be 90%, we don't know. Um, we just know it's a very useful tool, right? It's line linearly correlated with aging, the best, right, out of anything. That's what we do know, but we just don't know how it fits into the bigger picture. Right, so let me just get one additional clarification here before I make the comment also. So are these experiments in your 
uh, lab company, et cetera. Like these are your, your own experiments that you're describing, not, not ones that you've read about. Yeah, correct. So this is, um, I mean, we presented these findings, right? So they're not, they're not sort of confidential or anything. Um, we haven't published them just because we just need to choose carefully what we do and don't do. Um, publications tend to take a backseat in uh, commercial ventures. It's more about IP and, and publications can complicate IP. So, um, but we, we did find that there wasn't an acceleration of the clock. So we basically showed that our model didn't, it didn't, you know, represent an acceleration of aging according to the epigenetic aging clock, which is about as close to a, you know, the most important process. We, uh, people really believe in epigenetic aging as, as a, as a framework, um, but we weren't showing acceleration of that. Yeah. All right. So one, one final clarification, do the premature yeah. aging mice die sooner than the non premature aging mice? Yes, correct. So these mice, they die at 12, I think it's no 13 to 14 months. Um, but that's a lot of time for a startup. So we, we were actually drawn to the clock. Okay. But what, what I'm trying to highlight here is if this is the first time I'm hearing this, by the way, if, if what you are saying is correct, accurate, then it's uh, suggesting that there is strong counter evidence to the uh, to the idea that the epigenetic clocks actually have anything to do with the, the aging that matters model organisms. Um, so I, I should just clarify. So I'm talking about mitochondrial DNA mutations. Now there's mitochondrial DNA copy number, yeah, which is you know you you have a certain level of copies of this genome, and you can vary the copies up and down. So there's a master regulator called PGC1 alpha. It's basically like a little knob. You can turn it and turn turn up the number of you know power generating organelles you've got. You turn it down. Um, now there seems to be um, I, I, I don't know, you know, there's, there's a certain amount that I know that I don't know if it's published or not, but there is a relationship between mitochondria and the epigenetic aging clock. I can say that, um, but it's not, it's not a direct link between the mutations and that clock. Um, it's, it's more about um, different aspects of mitochondrial biology. It's a, it's a fascinating organelle and it seems to interact with the clock in different ways. It's just a very early research area at the moment, but it's, uh, it's looking interesting. Right, but I, I mean, this is this is quite interesting. What you're saying, if if there are models of mutations or you know whatever it is that's causing this, that causes them to prematurely age, and there there is not, uh, and you find that the epigenetic clock does not correctly reflect that accelerated aging, that to me at least sounds like a very interesting direction to pursue. And to to what you're saying, you know, a lot of people believe in the epigenetic clock. The word believe is very an interesting choice here because I think a lot of people in general are looking at the longevity space and they believe very strongly that it's going to work. And yeah, that is I a mean, belief. Yeah. No, so, um, there's no hard yeah. evidence, right? So um, it's, you know, if, if there's counter evidence to the, or, or if there are counter examples to the idea that the epigenetic clock is uniformly uh, indicating the, the progress of aging in, in, an, in an organism, then th th that would seem to me like one of the most interesting findings in, in what you've described. Yeah, so Robert, um, I think just two part, two part question, uh, two part answer, sorry. So firstly, the clock remains um, an alien technology. Yeah? So, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot that's known about the clock, but it was trained using a machine learning algorithm. Yeah. So you know, the algorithm picked up features in the, the aging time course that go up and down with age and together you put that, you know, into a sort of linear correlate. Um, but the story behind that is not being told. So 
Ken Raj is actually the individual that has made the most inroads as far as telling the story of the clock. You know, what are the cogs in the clock, right, that are driving the movement of the hands? Yeah, so that's you know, that's a lot of his pursuit. There's some really interesting things that sort of maybe don't don't reach discussion. So, for instance, the methylation changes in the clock over aging are in the region of three percent, and methylation is a binary event. So you're either methylated or you're not. Yeah, so. A change of 3% indicate, indicates there's a subpopulation of cells that are undergoing epigenetic aging. It's not all the cells, it's some of them. Um, and anyway, it's a whole fascinating area about, you know, where is the ticking of the clock coming from? Is it, you know, single cells? Uh, is it subpopulation? Is it a cell ensemble phenomenon? Um, there's a lot of story that hasn't been told yet. You know, similar to my therapeutic, it's a big black box. It's an alien technology that we arrived at through unbiased processes. And we, we're, we're reverse engineering it. And the clock falls into that same category. Um, but but like I said earlier, the clock is a window into aging biology. And um, the problem that we've got is making biological inferences from methylation, uh, you know, methylation of a certain site and what that means functionally. It's a little bit difficult. And so we're, we're working on it's, it's basically putting the biology first. Right. So how do we make a clock where the biology is first? So when we find a clock that works, um, we can tell a lot more story. Yeah? So this is, yeah, we, we basically, yeah, this is where we're going. That's, that's, that's what I'll say. So in a word, it is still fair to be skeptical of conclusions that uh, lean too heavily on the epigenetic clock as a marker for physiologic aging. Yeah, the clock is a sensor, but we don't understand, you know, the machinery of that sensor and, and what it represents. It's just, it, it moves in the expected ways, right? I think the power of, I think the the belief in the clock is because, you know, it, it slows down with caloric restriction. It speeds up with things that reduce lifespan. It seems to behave reliably, but people forgot the more interesting question, which is what is the clock, right? Like what, what does it represent? And um, they're, they're, more, they're more focused on the utility. Like I'm doing something, you know, how can the clock help me? And I'm doing, you know, somebody else is doing something else. How can the clock help me? It's more of that mentality. Um, but Ken Raj is really, he's sort of picked up, you know, the, the, the investigation on what is, what is the core of this uh, alien technology. Yeah, so this is, this is interesting. Uh, you know, I, I'm definitely going to follow up further on uh, what you mentioned here with Ken Raj and others. Um, certainly, this is the first time I'm hearing something like this. Uh, it it kind of reminds of, you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So... When you have an epigenetic clock, everything exactly, yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. I want to I want to go on to a couple of points that Evgeny made before maybe asking something else here. So you mentioned earlier, and Evgeny also brought this up, that the MRC takes a very large ownership stake in any uh, fruitful discoveries that you would have made there. So I think you said it was ninety percent. Yeah, so I mean, maybe I was just being um, juvenile, throwing my toys out of the pram. But I, I think, I think the the effort it takes to take you know something from academic level to real world technology is so gargantuan um, that to only to only be party to ten percent of the upside for me just feels it just feels wrong. And it's there's there's huge variation in policy between institutions. So unlike the MRC and the University of Cambridge. It has the opposite policy, so you you can keep ninety percent of the upside, right? If you develop IP within a University of Cambridge a laboratory, and um, you can you can basically claim up to ninety percent of the upside, ten percent going to and this is this is basically revenue from a, from IP or something like that, and um, so that's that's far more um, 
I don't know. I think it's far more forward thinking. Um, and, and Cambridge has got many more success stories. So I think, you know, I think you, when you when you see a policy like that, you see um, success stories from a very different policy. You just have to think, is this really the right way to do things? You know, am I going to be stuck with this weight around my leg or am I going to take a bit of risk myself, try and do things myself, spend my own money? Um, and just you know just just keep moving this project forwards because it takes it takes a person right these things don't happen on their own it takes a person it takes a, it takes a team to move technology no i really appreciate you bringing up that point so i mean yeah a team a team robert sorry i don't want to take all the credit um, we've got a great team at shift uh, it's a no, small no, team but it's a great team. no worries so i mean this is a very important point for founders universities investors policymakers what in your experience, observation, opinion, et cetera, would be a fair percentage for the university to claim? Um, that's, that's a very, <laughs> it's very subjective, right? Um, and I don't think you're in a position, I think until you've actually reached the success, right? You, you, it's almost, you want to tally the contributions at the end. You just want everybody to sort of get behind you and tally the contributions like that. Um, but I, I do think the University of Cambridge policy is, is more forward thinking um, and more in line with you know some of some of the I mean you just look look at the success stories right like if the if the institutions are getting it right there should be success stories what are the policies of those institutions I think Stanford does a really good job I think with that some of their um, IP licensing on uh, I think it was recombinant technology like they, they basically took a, a big picture view of it it was like look we want to get, you know, we obviously want to get upside from our science, you know, um, the economic upside. But, um, you know, we don't want to do that at the detriment of what what is, you know, startups are about as fragile as it gets. You know, we don't want to tax these guys before they're able to be taxed. Right. So it, sound, it, it sounds like uh, closer to the lion's share going to the uh, investigator rather than the funder or the uh, university. Um, we, we have a, at least one other person here in the audience. Uh, Andrew, if you, if you want to join in the conversation here, uh, just raise your hand. I, I think it'll be interesting to, to have a discussion about this because it's, uh, it's obviously a very big point of contention for uh, anyone involved in commercializing anything. Um, I, I, okay, let's bring uh, Andrew up here. Um, I do have a, a more scientific technical question afterwards if, if there's time. And, and again, just to uh, remind people, so we're going on, we're approaching on two hours, uh, we're keeping the conversation going, but uh, this is being recorded. So if you do come on stage, you, your voice and image are recorded. So Andrew, what are your thoughts? Well, this has been fascinating uh, and great to hear your story, Daniel, of uh, how, how it all started and, and where it's going. Um, yeah, so many, <clears throat> sorry, pardon me, so many interesting thoughts and questions. Um, and Robert, yes, I thought it was amazing that you touched on this issue of the disconnect there with aging and the, and the clock. Um, and, it, and it's going to be tough to publish those results. <laughs> you know, people don't want to hear that. And so it's going to be interesting if that's sort of um, kept quiet or, you know, is, is, is the epigenetic clock going to be a context specific clock? Um, what are your thoughts about that, Daniel? <clears throat> Of getting that sort of word out, that it's maybe context specific. So I, I think the clock has, you know, um, I think the the approach behind the clock is so compelling. So Steve Horvath didn't just arrive at the methylation clock; he he went through every omic layer 
available to him you know, in the public databases and it just so happens that he can you know create it's a compound methylation signature that's best correlated so he exhausted the data available and he arrived at this clock so you know we can't just dismiss it out of hand um you know just just because i don't know just because it doesn't you know it doesn't fit everything um and it doesn't match phenotype all of the time so um there's something important going on with that clock but it, it you know it remains to be elucidated now i think there's an interesting conversation which is this phenotypic aging yeah so you know where's the line between phenotypic aging and lots of sources of aging so there's you know for instance if we exacerbate mitochondrial dna mutations we get phenotypic aging if we have a defect in dna damage repair um we get phenotypic aging um hutchison guilford progeria which is a mutant lamin um we get phenotypic aging so it's like all of these different sources are getting integrated um at the phenotypic level and uh and so there's, you know, there's, there's something that's, I don't know what, you know, I don't know where all of the different things plug mm -hmm. in, but there's, there's some sort of, you know, it's like, it's like sort of tribute. It's like streams joining into rivers and then finally you get to phenotype and the phenotype is the ultimate integration of what's going on in, in everything in the cell. And um, so what, ideally you want a phenotypic clock. Yeah. So you want something as close to what you're concerned about, which is, whatever phenotype you can think about um but you want a clock that operates at the level of phenotype so you want to get as close to function as possible and um, there's actually a fascinating technology i think calico um, mentioned this first so it's called what's it called um it's called cell painting yeah so you you basically apply you apply seven or eight dyes to um the cell and you can basically stain the organelles in different ways and you can get organelle length, um, organelle proximity to other organelles. It's about 150 measures, um, but these are phenotypic measures, yeah, and they're incredibly data rich because they're integrating everything that's going on you know, below the surface. And you can basically create a, 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 an aging biomarker that is, I think it's as accurate as the epigenetic aging clock, but it's at the phenotypic level. You know, so if what you, you know, you just have to ask yourself, what is it that you're really, uh, you really care about is it the aging phenotype is it the underlying cause of aging it's almost like the big bang right where did it all start and how do we fix that or am i just concerned about the end result and fixing that and um, you just need to be very careful about you know what you're interested in and why and what you know ideally we want to fix you know what's started the whole problem and we want to fix the phenotype simultaneously that would be ideal but maybe there's compromises Yes, I, 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 I am a firm believer in the idea of cell painting and, and sort of imaging and, and sort of phenotypic assays. And maybe, you know, there is an option out there. Right? I mean, again, the clock is a, is a biomarker. We're hoping it's the sort of um, way we can study aging in clinical trial. Um, and maybe yeah, but you, you, must, you must always um, ask, you almost test your assumptions, yeah? like what is the clock? Like if, if, we, if, we, if we stop investigating that, we're... We're, we're going to end up in a very dangerous place, right, where we're, we're putting a lot of uh, risk on results on the clock um, without it qualifying that, right? So you've, you've mm -hmm. got to keep asking that question. That's why I really sort of am a big fan of Ken Raj. He's sort of taken up the, the role of doing this. And he's got some really fascinating stuff, but it's really up to Ken to talk about that. Yeah. And, and Robert, I guess you pulled me up here on the, on the thoughts of academia and... Um, the how they can enable um, basically the question of uh, what is the pro what is the fair division of ownership of uh, 
discoveries that have, that are in the lab that are being commercialized. So uh, should it be, you know, 10% of the university, 90%, 25%, 50 Like, it depends. But the question is, like, what do you feel is fair and uh, what will actually get people uh, moving in that direction? Yeah, it, it's a tough one. But I, but I think if you view it through, the model we have is uh, VC, <laughs> um, you know, where you can either have royalty payments. So, you know, you you should enable the startup, as, as Daniel said, you know, it's a fragile beast um, and you need to enable it to flourish. And putting payment structures up front before there's been any investment or revenue or profit made is, is a deterrent. Um, so it, it should really be small upfront. I mean, at minimum, sort of cover the IP costs um, at the first opportunity. But they really should be allowed to flourish and there should be royalty payments or, or at least milestone payments um, at later days, typical to more of a VC. And we see that, you know, MIT does a great job of that. I think they're very sophisticated um, in the way they approach it. Um, so, Robert, I just add that this, I mean, there's so much variation in the commercialization models between institutions. I, it would be fantastic if somebody did a, a proper analysis, right? You know, say Cambridge University um, and, and, you know, companies that have originated, um, MIT, Harvard, right? And, and just try and basically link the policy to the success rate. I know there's um, Northern European countries where the founder just keeps everything, right? So the the institution just doesn't have any hold on the IP whatsoever. So basically they can do science, but if they want to commercialize it, it's, it's all on them. Um, and I, I don't know what the success rate is of that institution, but it's, you know, the, the variation is very large and I just, I don't know what the connection is, but there might be a paper out there, but if somebody did that, that would be fantastic. Yeah, that's a really good idea. Which countries did you say the owner, the uh, investigator keeps full ownership? I think it's an oil rich company. I think it's um, a country. I think it's Norway. I think, it, yeah, I think it's Norway where they have this, but I might be wrong. It might be Sweden, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Norway. All right. Well, that's something to uh, look into for sure. Um, I do have a technical question now, going back on onto the mitochondria stuff, uh, unless someone else wants to ask something. So, um, Hi, all. Person on the, uh, what, yeah, welcome to the stage. What's, what's your question? Sorry, yes. I um, have a question just on the most recent um, discussion around um, payments to the university and that sort of thing. So um, I am studying, I'm in healthcare supply chain, and I study pharmaceutical supply chains at Ohio State University. Um, and so I was just curious, my research is really at the intersection of pharma and public policy. And the policies that you're talking about, are those typically at the country level or are those at the university level? Um, yeah, they're, they're at the university level. So um, yeah, basically um, universities can set, set their policies, you know, how they, how they basically commercialize research. Um, and, and it's really up to them. I'm, I'm not aware of any top-down national initiatives, certainly not in the UK. Maybe that exists elsewhere, but um, from, from what I know, it's, it's basically university-specific. Very cool. Thank you. You're welcome. So, uh, Daniel, I have a question about the measurement of um, mitochondria 
on the one hand, and then a separate question. Um, I, I think this comment that you made about the epigenetic clock not lining up with premature aging models is very interesting. Uh, like I said, it's the first time I've heard about this in the context, like myself, in a research context, I'm going to follow it up. But if you wanted to measure what's going on in the cell with the mitochondria without the epigenetic clock, what are the best available measures that you're using? Yeah, so very simple answer. Um, there's, a, there's a whole company that was set up to do this. Um, it's not the single cell level, it's just cell populations, but it's called uh, Seahorse. Um, so I think it's called the Seahorse Flux Analyzer. Sounds like something from Back to the Future, but it's just um, it's a machine that basically takes oxygen consumption measurements. Um, so you basically treat the cells with various things that um, perturb energy production, and it it can basically uh, figure out how much how much um, yeah oxygen your mitochondria consume, which is a proxy for function. Um, and it's a, it's a very standardized assay. It's well commercialized. Um, a little bit expensive to do the assay, but um, pretty accessible now. So using that assay, can you detect the rejuvenation of the mitochondria uh, independently of the epigenetic clock? That, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so lots of people do this routinely. Like you, you, you can, I mean, before the clock, people used to, you know, look at mitochondrial function and they looked at various different things. And yeah, mitochondrial function was one of them. So um, yeah, it's just an obvious thing to check uh, if you're, I mean, I think a lot of the papers that, you know, that are published that use the clock, they always use alternative measures as well, right? So they, they, don't, they don't put all of their eggs in one basket on the clock. So I think David Sinclair has measured, you know, um, I don't know, autophagy and mitochondrial function. They always do those things in parallel in addition to the clock just to get out of this, you know, this risk that, you know, the clock is basically, it's a false positive, right? That's what you're worried about. The clock's saying one thing. Um, but actually, it's just the clock misbehaving. Um, yeah. All right. My other question, sort of following up on to some stuff I think getting brought up. Uh, what is the, <clears throat> um, maybe I should ask this the other way. So, so much research makes use of, including your own, as you described, you know, uh, mice, mouse models, and so forth. Are there any organisms that have you know, interesting properties with their mitochondria that uh, would be, um, you know, showing the same kinds of results that you're, that you're hoping to see here. And, and sort of related to this is, what is the smallest uh, contained version of a mitochondria that exhibits the aging and, and rejuvenation that you are, are studying? So for example, is it possible, I, I don't know the field, so I'm asking genuinely here. Um, is it possible to isolate, isolate like a single mitochondria or two, put it in some cell-like uh, medium in, a, in like a micro pet well or something, micro well, and, and just look at what's happening to it instead of like the entire cell or, or, or uh, collection cells? Um, yeah, I, you can do that, Robert. Um, and I think well, Nathan's done a great um, couple of articles on sort of mitochondrial companies and all the different things that are going on. There's some really interesting stuff. It's like, for instance, there's there's mitochondria just in your blood, like free living mitochondria swimming around, right? This is this is like a real finding and it's completely nuts. Um, so these things can actually sort of move around. I don't know what the circumstances are, but they're able to do this. And they were once free living organisms. So 
Um, you, you can have a look at them. I, I don't, you see, I'm not a mitochondrial specialist anymore, right? That was actually quite a while ago now. So I don't really put all my energy and bandwidth on that field, but there's certainly some really interesting stuff. The more you get into mitochondria, it's like Narnia. Yeah. It's just, it's like, Oh my God, what's happening now. And um, what is it? It's like the electron transport chain. It runs way above room temperature. I think it's like 50 degrees or something. Um, and this wasn't known before. So, you know, this has real, um, consequences as far as protein folding is concerned. And well, there are local temperature gradients inside the cell. Yeah. Yeah. Like the engine is hot. I mean, it sort of makes sense after, after, after the fats, right. But, they're, they're very hot and you've got to deal with that heat and yeah it, there's so much that hasn't been discovered about them um i'd encourage you to sort of read about it um but obviously don't be, don't become blinkered because that's that's the that's no, the risk right no, yeah. i i when you say blinkered what, what do you mean i mean um it becomes so interesting that you forget there's research outside of mitochondria like this is what i'm guilty of right it's just everything everything looks like a mitochondria and you, you said this like everything looks like a nail when you've got a hammer Right. So, uh, I mean, um, no, I, I, I'm with you on this. I think uh, the, gen you know, people that are at least honest with themselves who are working on biology will, will sort of say, you know, the more that is known about biology or a particular area of biology, the more that you realize that you actually don't know. <laughs> so um, for yeah, now, yeah, yeah. but the reason I brought up the mitochondrial uh, model organisms and isolated uh, models is, you know, um, would it be helpful, do you think, in your work to have more advanced instrumentation and platforms of this nature, as opposed to having being forced to work with only the existing assays, entire mice, uh, etc.? I wouldn't say that right now. Um, I think the seahorse machine ticks most of the boxes. Yeah, you just it just gives you a really good idea of how the mitochondria are functioning, like in a basal state and under strain. You know, like maximal energy production and then basal energy production. So. For me, that ticks a lot of boxes. I'm, there's not not a huge amount extra that I'd I'd need right right now from that. Um, so yeah, I think sort of technically, I think the field has got the tools at the moment. Um, there might be some niche application that I'm not thinking about, but um, just coming back to, I think you're talking about organisms. So um, th there's a really interesting finding in naked mole rats. So this was actually a George Church finding. Um, I think it was way back, like 2009. And he basically did analysis of the naked mole rat transcriptome and to, to, to basically what, you know, naked mole rat versus mouse. Yeah, a mouse doesn't live very long and naked mole rat's about the same size, but lives way longer, like 10 times longer. What's the biggest transcriptional difference, right, between those two, you know, seemingly similar organisms? And transcriptionally, um, mitochondria are the most upregulated pathway in the, the naked mole rats. Yeah, it was like, bang, it's just there. And it, it, George Church isn't a mitochondrial biologist. So that was very interesting to see that. It might have something to do with their environment. Um, I think when it rains, the soil gets wet and they have to dig intensely. So their like, energy consumption just goes off the roof with the digging. So maybe they need extra mitochondria for that. Um, but there's an interesting story there. There's a lot of interesting directions to take. Um, I didn't want to uh, monopolize the conversation here. Uh, maybe one last question for me and I'll, I'll pass it on to someone else. Um, you did say that you're not a mitochondrial biologist, like you're not focusing on that so much anymore, but for the science nerds in the room here, and I'm one of them, <laughs> what are the best, say, one or two textbooks to get up to speed with uh, what is currently known about mitochondrial biology? Okay, so there's a, there's a great book with a great title um, by Nick Lane, who's, a, who's an aging scientist at UCL in London. It's called um, 
Saks power and the mitochondria, um, just because mitochondria are involved in those two things. Um, and it's just, it's actually quite a, an old book now. I think he's done a follow-up to this book. Um, but that's, it's a, it's a great read and it just takes you down the rabbit hole of mitochondria. And, you know, like basically why do we have two sexes? It seems like the mitochondria are involved in that. Um, basically, you know, the reason we can do what we can do as big multicellular organisms is that we internalize that energy production. So if we didn't like sort of fold that membrane on the inside and have this you know, huge surface area, we wouldn't be able to pump protons as much and have as much energy. It's really that event, the the sort of eukaryotic cells that's you know swallowing of a organism and making it into a mitochondria that was a defining moment as far as like big organisms are concerned so this book is yeah it's fantastic you could probably read that in a day or two just because it's a good read all right so nick lane thanks i'll, I'll look that up nathan any other questions uh anyone else comment you always have good questions Yeah, I guess if nobody else has a question. Um, so, so Daniel, when do you think uh, you can start going to clinical trial? Like, do you have a, a roadmap in your mind of how to uh, bring these sort of technologies to possibly, you know, humans in th therapeutics? Yeah. So, so right now, um, we're in we're in a position where basically we have a clock that's been able to give us really great biological inference. So it's not the most accurate clock under the sun. It hasn't been optimized for absolute accuracy, but it's comparable to the accuracy of epigenetic aging clocks. But it's it's made out of genes, yeah. And genes have a big functional story. Um, now we we have this list of genes. A lot of them are just exciting in their own right. Um, you know, if we could, if we wanted to today, right, we could just take a risk on some of these genes, express them and just see if they're sufficient to rejuvenate. But we want to really do this systematically. So the Yamanaka approach, where he basically whittled down 24 factors to a minimum set of four factors. We're basically doing that for these what, what are rejuvenation factor candidates. So that process, I think, is going to take us a year to 18 months, just whittle it down to the common set. And um, we want to do in parallel um, a experiment making sure that we maintain fibroblast identity with whatever set of factors it turns out is, is the minimum set. You know, just you know, make sure that we're not running the risk of, um, you know, basically tipping pre-malignant cells into cancer, um, which is a risk at the moment with these reprogramming. So once we've got that minimum set, then to be honest, um, at that stage, I think it's, you know, like if it's, it's basically you just run the preclinical clinical gauntlet and, the bottleneck really is just setting up what, what are those therapeutic candidates, right? You know, what are those genes, first of all? Um, are we absolutely sure of those? Can we validate those? Um, and then once we know what they are, there's different routes, right? You can go therapeutic mRNA, which is you know, a relatively new approach, but there's so many people taking the Pfizer vaccine now. The safety is, you know, there's this doors opened, right, that you don't have to worry about safety exists. So you can go that route. Um, or you can go the small molecule route of mRNAs are problematic from a delivery perspective. But we, we really just want to whittle it down to those core set of re rejuvenation factors. I don't know what we're going to call them, but at the moment we've got these bioinformatic predictions. Let's test the real world. Yeah, let's like, like go to the real world, test reality um, and see if we can do it. Right. And um, so for us in the next 18 months, it's all hands on deck. 
Um, we might, we might, we might, you know, there might be zero. Yeah? Our bioinformatic predictions might be out, and we might need to go back to the computer. Um, but I'm just from what we're looking at, it looks very promising. I think I did have a discussion previously. Um, Steve Horvath in his most recent paper with the mammalian clock. Unexpectedly, the mammalian clock. Um, it, it, it says that neuron genes and neuro, neurogenesis, neuron development genes are downregulated with aging. And we're seeing the same sort of theme crop up in sort of rejuvenation time courses. So it's very nice to see an unexpected finding on his side and we're seeing it on our side as well. So there's just a lot of reasons for us to be, you know, um, optimistic about what we're seeing. It's like there's, you know, some, some um, you know, usual suspects show up, right? It doesn't prove that what we've got is correct, but it's just reassuring. Like, like the clock, the epigenetic clock, it slows down with caloric restriction. That gives us confidence in the clock, right? It's behaving as expected. Our gene list is not as expected, but it's, there's a lot of things that give us confidence. Yeah, thank you. Well, let's see. Do we have a question from Monty? Yeah, I came in late, but I, I, def I definitely am uh, really into doing anything that I can uh, for the sake of longevity. I'm trying uh, a number of different uh, protocols to see, you know, what, what I'm comfortable with, and just some of the things that I'm that I'm currently experimenting with. Let me see, include. For instance, um, fasting, uh, caloric restriction, and there's a there's a type of supplement called berberine. It's supposed to be um, similar to metformin, but for people who, for whatever reason, don't want to go the route of metformin, yeah. uh, it's been recommended that you know we consider berberine. And let's see what else am I doing? Yeah, Monty, sorry. Uh, we, we're ahead. discussing sort of the biotech scene here. Um, oh, okay. I'm sorry. No, I appreciate your, right. your thoughts, but maybe we can uh, come back to that another time. Um, um, Robert, Robert, I can give a short answer because I, I did some personal experimentation, right? Because, you know, it's for the cause, right? You just want to take risks. Now, um, so just just quickly, um, so I, I was a big fan of Dale Bredesen, and I don't know if you're familiar, but Dale Bredesen worked at the Buck Institute, and he came up with basically a model of Alzheimer's that you could address therapeutically through changes in diet and supplements and things like that. And I really believed in this, and I thought this this was going to be like a book like David Sinclair's Lifespan. Um, it was called like Ending Alzheimer's. And uh, basically, I figured out that you could, instead of taking all these expensive nutritional supplements to reverse Alzheimer's, because I wanted to do that as an insurance policy, you could get most of it in a pregnancy supplement. Um, I think it's called Pregnacare Plus. Um, so, so for a brief period, I was I, I decided to take pregnancy supplement. And there's, you know, it's quite funny, right? And uh, sort of my girlfriend's uh, parents show up and there's pregnancy supplement all over the house. And they're like, what's going on and then my, my girlfriend has to explain that actually it's um her husband's taken the pregnancy supplement but this is the really interesting thing monty my nails grew much better and my hair grew much better right so it wasn't like you know i, I actually felt some benefits and when i came off the pregnancy supplement because it has too much iron which can cause toxicity so no longer than a month um when i came off it my hair wasn't as good and my nails weren't as good anymore so if you love your hair and your nails I'll take, take Pregnant Care Plus.
Okay, I keep that in mind. I'll just listen in to see if there's anything I can uh, get out of out of whatever research that you guys are up to. Thanks. Well, you just heard that maybe taking pregnancy supplements might actually help. <laughs> yeah. That, okay. okay. Um, please, please Funny. seek uh, medical advice. Um, I'm not. I'm not a, a qualified uh, sort of doctor. Yes, right. yeah. Just a PhD <laughs> doctor. Very important caveat. This is not medical advice. Uh, uh, do not do anything without consulting a professional, uh, your doctor, uh, et cetera. Um, but thank you for the question. Um, so Nathan, Daniel, we're going on past the two hour mark here. Uh, how would you like to proceed? Um, I mean, I'm here yeah, until yeah. until everybody's done with me, um, <laughs> just because I'm actually on holiday now. So this is uh, tomorrow's, tomorrow's holiday. So I'll just keep going. Maybe I can ask a general question for everyone here. Um, so for people who are interested in starting companies in the longevity space, you know, founders, maybe they've never started a company before and they're just starting out. Um, there are some, you know, some options that we discussed that Daniel talked about, you know, uh, different accelerators uh, like Y Combinator uh, creative destruction labs. There was a couple that you mentioned in, in the UK as well. But uh, if you could create such an accelerator yourself, what what would you focus on? Like, what would be the main sort of ideas or, or methods or structures in such an accelerator that you would? Um, Nathan, I can I can start if you want. So. Um, I, I mentioned there's a program, a Bristol program, where they basically pay you money to fly around the world talking to people. Yeah, so if you can find the meetings, you just you basically you just get the lay of the land, right? Just figure out what's working, what's not working, what's the state of the art. No obligations outside of that, right? It's just a big research task. Um, I think that's a fantastic initiative. I mean, I was able to do this not for an accelerator, but just through Jonathan, who's you know I'm just very lucky to have Jonathan. But Jonathan sort of supported that by, you know, allowing me to be out there and doing that. Um, but I think, you know, that that would be a that would be a, a great first step um, in an accelerator, yeah? because you know, I think building a company comes after you've found something really interesting, you've formulated it, you've figured out how it might go wrong. The company bit sort of, you know, builds a little bit later, but you really need to find the lay of the land first, yeah. Um, like where you're going to work and who, who you need to work with, or maybe you, you just attach yourself to a company rather than start something new. It's not always the right solution to start something, you know, start a new company. And um, that's what I would say. The uh, accelerator thing you're talking about, the uh, UK Bristol program. So they fly you, you fly around the world talking to uh, investors, is that correct? Um, anybody, so anybody that you you know, you just send emails. You um, you just it could be you know it could be a researcher, it could be an investor, just anybody that will have you. Which is you know where the hundred hundred meetings come from. You just have to cold call as many people as possible without a network. Um, but they just pay you to do this, right? Just just go talk to people and find things out. And you know if you get somewhere, then they'll continue to back you. If you don't get somewhere, then you've blown your twenty k. <laughs> that's crazy so they pay you 20k to to talk to people for you said was it like three months or something like that yeah and i i had one of these individuals approach me and uh, i was able to basically you know 
download a lot of stuff and he said this is fantastic and you know I, I think just setting up that situation right you know with that 20k that's that's very forward thinking yeah and i guess that was before covid or something well well now that there's covid uh, everybody can do these meetings uh you know online potentially right so maybe you don't need 20k to fly around the world you just need a uh, hundred different i guess zoom calls <laughs> Yeah, also, or, you know, I think these clubhouse talks are quite good and you're going to be doing this virtual, what was it, co-working, um, which I think is a really interesting idea. So I think maybe that will tap into some of these uh, these things which the Bristol program is trying to get out in the real world. Totally. Awesome. Um, does anybody else have any ideas about this, Andrew or Evgeny from the academia side? Like if you were starting a company, um, and you were looking for like an accelerator or something like that to help you get some connections. Uh, what, what would you want to see in such an accelerator? I guess it should be qualified investors, first of all, because it might be very difficult to explain to general investors what you want. And if it's if it's really was the best. Yeah, so Evgeny, I just I'd um, just add that I think there are collectives now. So there's um, Longevity Investors Network. I think Avier Norris is uh, one of the guys behind that. I think he's at Lifespan.io. So there's this. Um, I think he he sort of basically created this uh, like angel network. And I think uh, longevity.technology is also becoming like a network hub for longevity-specific investors. So these things are starting to happen now. They, they didn't exist when I started out. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's you're going to get some really good feedback from people that aren't just going to dismiss you because longevity is a, is a craze or it's just hype. Thank you very much, Daniel. I also have um, a question about uh, the connection between uh, epigenetics and mitochondria. So, do do you? Okay, <laughs> go yeah. ahead. Yes. Yeah, so, so basically, it's about um, what, what do do you know any particular pathways involved, um, or particularly about copy number and uh, epigenetic log. Um. I just want to give Andrew the chance because we were on we're on a certain thread that Nathan started. Andrew, were you going to talk about um, you know basically yeah Nathan, yeah, yeah. Thanks, and then uh, Evgeny, I'll get back to your question after Andrew's just uh, yeah it's, it's very a very quick point following on from the um, the VC. I mean, obviously, Y Combinator I think has done a, has done a very good job, um, but the the to get into that game is is quite a high bar. Um, and so I think there needs there could there should be something which has a lower sort of entry point, um, and I think Clubhouse can can form that. Um, but I think there's a lot of people who are serious about starting things, but maybe don't have their idea flushed out. Um, and having people like yourself, Nathan, Robert, to help guide, whether it's just to be to flush out ideas, I think would be um, a real help. Yeah, Nathan, what I want you to do, um, and you know, I, this is up to you, but it's like the Wall Street bets of longevity. Yeah? It's like you have this Reddit thread 
<laughs> and everybody's just everybody's just piling on board and you know if we get it wrong we get it, get it wrong together um but if we get it right it's fantastic and you know like i don't know i don't know if that's the, the way it's going to go but i just like the idea of that <laughs> totally yeah i've been thinking about installing something on longevity list maybe some sort of some ways for people to collect together and uh sort of trade ideas. Uh, I also have something else that might be potentially big coming up in the next few weeks, but I, I can't really announce it until later. <laughs> I'll talk no to you in, in, in private. Um, Evgeny, so I'll just, just go back to your point about um, epigenetic clocks and, and mitochondria. Um, so, I mean, just to give an, give an example with my compound, which I can talk about. So um, I said that in mice, yeah, so we, we affect uh, mitochondrial DNA mutations in mice, but those mutations aren't linked to the clock. So our, our compound's doing something, right? Um, but it's not really through the mitochondria. And interestingly, when we treat um, keratinocytes, which are the um, sort of surface surface cells in your skin, if we treat those with our compound, we can actually make the keratinocytes uh, live about twice as long. So they, they keep doubling for twice as long, but it has absolutely no effect on the epigenetic clock. So these these um, these keratinocytes, their their telomeres aren't you know that you know they're basically the same length they would be, um, you know when the control cells senesce. Um, so so there's something about this compound um, that's targeting mitochondrial DNA mutations that allows the lifespan of the cells to double. It has no effect on epigenetic aging. So the way that I divide this is that you know um, there's there's the there's the computer of the cell, which is the nucleus, which is sort of epigenetic aging, like, you know, how, how well is your computer functioning? And then you've got the cytosol, which is basically homeostasis. And that really is what keeps the show, show going, right? Maintaining homeostasis. Um, and that, that, that's more, you know, that's, again, it's speculative, but that's, you, you can imagine that's more about lifespan, right? Maintaining homeostasis. It doesn't matter if your computer's malfunctioning, like the nucleus. As long as you're maintaining homeostasis, you can keep going. Um, and I think there's examples where epigenetic age can just, you know, if you have an immortal line, and you can, it just keeps going up and up and up and up. But the cells survive. So, again, it's what, what are you interested in? Yeah? Is it epigenetic aging and reversing that at all costs? Or are you interested in some phenotypes that aren't necessarily all about epigenetic aging? No, I mean, I, I was just interested in, in, in general because it, it's it, indeed unusual that you, this, this processes are uncoupled. But on the other hand, why not? Why, why basically uh, epigenetic age should follow uh, DNA copy number? I mean, mitochondrial DNA copy number. So... It, it, Basically, yeah, it's especially if it's in just cell culture model. Yeah, so Evgeny, there, there will be um, there will be uh, results published at some point in respect to mitochondrial DNA copy number and and the epigenetic clock. But it's not it's not for me to speak about that. So I'm I'm aware of them, but I'm, I can't say anything about it. Yeah, it would be very interesting to read. Uh, and and in terms of um, accelerator, sorry, I'm just switching between topics. Uh, I think it also would be great, maybe just indeed combine uh, academic people from academia and people with business experience. The way they do this in entrepreneur first and just focus on particular longevity field. I'm sure they there will be lots of interest for this. So uh, following up to your point, Evgeny, 
what kind of business people are you looking for um, to get like advice? Well, I think there is a, in, in general, you know, when people go to academia, they really focus, you know, to become professor or something like that. Uh, and they, most of, most of scientists not, don't really understand what's happening in business side and basically not trained and never, most of them never have a dream about uh, business. So when you suddenly realize, um, okay, your postdoc is going to finish and you don't really want to be eternal postdoc, uh, you might start thinking about business, but you don't have really understanding of business side. But on the other hand, there are people doing a business and interested in longevity, but have no idea about molecular basis and other stuff. So it would be great to connect these people in a way. And uh, both sides could bring the value for the, for the startup. So, uh, I see. That... so you're, you're thinking about like connecting a, a scientific co-founder with like a, a more business side co-founder and see. Yes, so this is science. exactly what they do in Entrepreneur First, actually. Mm -hmm. okay. And it yeah. works anyway. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. There can be a good, you know, division of work between these two, like, you know, specialties. It's difficult to have both, I guess. Because people be like Daniel I... are rare, you know, people like Daniel who, could, who, who understand biology and can at the same time run the company. It's, it's rare, rare qualities, right? Yeah, I mean, Evgeny, what, what I would say is that I, I wouldn't underestimate the power of just getting out there and just talking to people. You're going to get a lot of no's. And it's going to be frustrating, but there are people out there that keep an open mind um, and they, they do have a science background. But yeah, like you said, it is rare to have the business and the science side. I think scientists, uh, you know, they, they double down on what they do well, right? Build on your strengths. And uh, a lot of the commercial stuff just isn't prioritised. Um, but I think, yeah, I think being mission-led, it just forces you to learn what you need to learn when you need it. Um, so, but those individuals are out there, yeah. So I think just keep keep talking. Yeah, it's it's, it's not always going to arrive at your doorstep. So it's, there's a, there's a bit of a responsibility to sort of try and find things which aren't necessarily well defined. Yeah. Yeah. Just to follow up that. Um, <laughs> Sorry. So yeah, go 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 on, Robert. Uh, I, yeah. I think a uh, very good point Jenny uh, brought up that uh, it's rare to find and some same person. Um, how, I mean, um, it's probably easier in some sense for someone with science background to go into the early stages of trying to get a venture off the ground. But then in the later stages, you know, business is not easy. Like, the, uh, like there, there's real skill involved in, in uh, navigating negotiations and fundraising and, and communication and things like that. So uh sonia erison of the foresight health extension group and uh, 100 plus capital has brought up this point that uh there's a lot of great ideas in labs but uh uh you know it, it, it's it's hard to find people that can bridge the gap between uh science and the real world uh of business um i i did want to ask also like you you mentioned daniel that uh just getting out there and talking to people and um 
trying to work for others who have the experience that you're looking for is, is a very productive way um, of, of going about all this. What about from the business side of things? Like, suppose you have someone that is, uh, and there's a lot of people out there like this, right? Who, who uh, they, they have enough money to support ventures like yours, but they don't know how to find you or someone like you, you know, or, or research projects in the lab that are uh, uh, promising, like the ones that you've pursued so far. So how would you suggest to them to proceed from that side? So, yeah, just to paraphrase, Robert, so, you know, it's a, a business person that is trying to find the scientist, basically. Is that is that what you mean? Yeah, essentially. Like, how do you source opportunities for investment? So, um, I think, I, I, you know, obviously, I'm a fan of Nathan, so I think he's doing a good job of, of putting those two together. Um, like I said, there was these angel networks. There's some fantastic tools available now as well, though, like sort of shortcuts, you know, like um, like there's David Sinclair's Lifespan book, which is a great, you know, it's like inviting new people into the field. Um, yeah, they could just read that book and all of a sudden they're turned on um, to the field. There's many others um, beyond David Sinclair that have written these great sort of public consumption books. I think that does a lot of good. Um, I mean, beyond that, trying to find specific projects um, I think I think it sort of boils down to the academic literature. I think if you're publishing as academic, you're more likely to, you know, make yourself known um, if it's a, a good publication. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a good question, Robert. I don't think I've got a clear answer to that. Um, yeah, I think the closest the closest of these. Long, yeah, yeah. No, no pressure. It's more you know just something to think about. And if you if anyone does have ideas, or if you come up with an idea later, you know, we can definitely uh, come back to it. It's it's a, a problem that, that I think a lot of investors or people on the investment side or people on the business side are struggling with. Um, yeah, one thing I would say is that um, I, I, I think there's, this, there's a really um, interesting role that sort of scientists, academic scientists have, um, and they don't realize how valuable this is. And it's like being a Sherpa, yeah? So basically introducing this field, because Aubrey used to, this, this is what Aubrey's been doing forever, yeah? Um, but there's only so many meetings Aubrey can take. Um, so there's this huge opportunity just to take somebody that doesn't know about this and bring it bring it to their attention. There's just so many um, success stories now, like real world results, like the TRIM trial, um, Greg Farhey, Bobby Brook, you know, they've actually reversed epigenetic aging like real humans and they didn't, they didn't do it dangerously. It was relatively safe. Like that, that's just a, you know, it's not a pie in the sky, right? You can point to that and, um, you know, um, just in, just inviting someone into the field and showing it to them is just so exhilarating for that person, yeah. And then you become this sherpa, and then naturally, after you've you know you've you've done them a favor, right, which is bring this thing to their attention, they'll say, okay, so what's interesting and what are you working on? So I think these people are all over the place. So Jonathan was an example, right? It just happens, you know, this was, this was a while back. Um, but there's people just waiting to learn about this, but just haven't heard because they've been preoccupied on. I don't know, other industries or things like that. Um, so, yeah, if you can find one of those people that is like basically virgin, right, to the ageing field and you invite them in, wonderful things can happen. And so more recently, um, we talked to some guys, I'm not able to talk about the details, but these are really big, um, you know, uh, bioscience entrepreneurs in the States, like the very best and the very best Silicon Valley backing. 
and they weren't aware of what was going on. And uh, I was just introduced. Um, you know, I've got a friend um, who's who's basically linked up to these guys, and they've just piled in so hard. It's unbelievable. It's like they they're just moving mountains right to to get involved and they're like changing their own plans and things like that and, and these were just virgin these, these were virgins to the aging field and it just took somebody like a sherpa to just lead them to to the view um and i think that's a huge opportunity that's available to a lot of us so it's very interesting uh thanks for that input i guess uh it's something that we should consider doing more of also to try to to reach out to people i guess like you're saying with the example of uh of uh jonathan i think it's milner right yeah that's correct yeah jonathan, jonathan milner um I, I was actually uh i made it almost all the way through his csr presentation uh, that you pointed pointed me to before the call here um so yeah he, he does seem very enthusiastic and is, is uh uh, talking about uh, a lot of the key activity in, in this field. Yeah, yeah, he's a great guy, great guy. So we are now two and a half hours in. Uh, we are still recording this for anyone on the call. Uh, Nathan, Daniel, I, I may have to step out a little bit, but uh, you know, feel free to continue if you uh, would like. I'm going to leave the Longevity Show account on to keep the thing recording um at least for a little bit uh so yeah how, how do you want to proceed um nathan it's it's really up to you i don't want you to hang on out of politeness so i will wrap up if, if now's now's the best time i i can stick around uh but uh i think seven i have another call but uh yeah, love to keep talking if anybody wants to keep talking. <laughs> right, so it sounds like till, we can go till seven uh, local time here in Toronto. Um, Daniel, it's uh, very generous of you to stay. It's, I guess it's, uh, what is it, plus four or five now to the UK, so it must be 11.30 or 10.30. It, it's fine. This is actually like a treat for me um, to talk about these things, um, so don't worry about it. Okay, no. Uh, Always love to have you here. Of course, uh, the conversations uh, that uh, we bring up here are, are, are very good. Uh, and um, this, this really went in depth into uh, a lot of the stuff that I think uh, are, is on people's minds. I, I did want to follow up on an earlier question I brought up uh, where I was asking about the closest calls that you had where you were closest to giving up. Um, you did mention the context, but I guess what I was really trying to get at here is what kept you going? What is it that, you, you know, when when anyone that tries to do something even remotely like uh, uh you know off the beaten path is going to encounter an enormous amount of, of setbacks discouragement uh, uh trouble uh you know murphy's law that kind of stuff so what kept you going what kept you from quitting um that that like what was your uh motivation and determination to, to keep you on the path to keep pushing and, and keep trying and even when when it seems like there's almost no hope uh keep trying another approach and and that's sort of thing. yeah no, this, this is uh I, I wish i spent more time on this so um i think the like what 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 leads you to giving up right and it's it's usually a comparison between you and somebody else right comparison is like I think there's a saying, right? It's like comparison is the source of all misery or something like that. Um, 
and it's you know your friends are just moving forward with their lives whilst you're stuck on this crazy idea that you started ages ago so it's like it's it's that delta between where you are and where everybody else is in their lives and lots of things that you want right but you can't have because you've decided to do this thing um and then you know basically that that forces a binary onto your you know the current current situation it's like look this needs to work out in a certain way if i'm gonna keep putting that those things off yeah um so i think what what kept me going right was this, I mean, this is just, I mean, it's a funny thing. You, you just, you try and, you try and search for something where, you know, you're, you're always winning at something, right? And it can be minute, minutely narrow. But the, the thing that always sort of, you know, sort of um, propped me up or, you know, uh, sort of gave me a bit of extra spirit and um, people just ask, so what do you do? Right. And uh, I'd say, oh yeah, I'm, uh, I'm sort of working in uh, bioscience. They're like, oh, what sort of bioscience? And I said, well, we're looking at the aging process. And then just everybody's just very interested it's very easy to people to plug into this topic there's so many questions you know just sort of layperson questions that are actually very interesting um and i just discussed about what i'm doing and it's just a it's a very it's a good conversation starter people always very interested and they'd always follow up like oh so how's it going now um and it just seemed like i was the only person doing something interesting right i think maybe i'm being unfair to my friends but um none of nobody nobody else was really excited right about what they were doing it was mostly about their home lives not their work lives and i thought that was a real shame although you know my home life was suffering because of my work life but um i don't know it just felt like i was i was doing something a bit you know bigger just a sort of a bigger story right something like that and people were just interested in it and that sort of kept me going so it was the excitement of the venture that that or the direction that really kept you going even even through all the hard times yeah i think it's yeah i think there's it's an adventure spirit um i think i don't know i don't want to there's other adventurers out there but i i just like that feeling that you're going into the unknown you're just you're just you're throwing everything at it yeah you're trying everything um it's just a very good state you know if you if you're if you're behaving like that you're going to be finding new technologies, you're going to be talking to new people. It's quite a nice place to be as long as you can sustain that, right, and you actually get somewhere in the end. Um, but but the actual feeling is very nice, um, so that, that sort of helps. Nathan, I just realized we, we didn't do the, the lightning round questions or any of that stuff. Uh, <laughs> I want to go with that, and then I have a question actually to put to Daniel uh, if there's time here. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll come back to that. You wanted to say something here. Yeah, actually, I just wanted to comment on what Daniel was saying. Um, I think that's interesting, like this idea of being like an explorer, right, on the frontier. And it reminds me of um, uh, this biography I read, uh, Endurance. And it's basically talking about the journey of Ernest Shackleton and his journey to, um, uh, sorry, expedition to Antarctica, right? And they, they encountered a lot of issues on that trip. And you know they almost all died, and there was just like, just like this this crazy sort of quest for survival. And I I think that's very apt for uh, the entrepreneurs' uh, kind of journey and uh, the mission that they have, just like being able to endure through all this pain. And uh, <laughs> especially when you get rejected by all these these investors, I thought that was such an interesting story that Daniel was able to provide. And uh, it just really comes back to. You know my mission that I'm I'm trying to grow a wave of passionate people who are building fun.
adapting and championing, you know, technologies that extend healthy human lifespan, right? And and uh, if you know the word uh, passion, right, you think it's oh, you just really love it, right? But actually, the the etymology of that word passion actually comes from Latin for for pain, right? So like the passion of the Christ is actually talking about pain, right? So it's it's this idea of trying to find people who are willing to risk and endure all the pain that comes with trying to do these these missions to to try and you know take science to the next level to for the betterment of humankind so i just really love you know the story that daniel gave to us yeah i mean nathan if you just if you keep the reality so you know where we're trying to go right which is the reality of resetting your biological age you know to mid mid 20s right if you keep that reality in mind you know, it's like the light at the end of the tunnel. You can really throw yourself into the dirt. I, I remember, like, uh, I did a lot of things to raise money before I got investment from Jonathan. But the whole time, I was absolutely convinced I could do this, right? And the reality was so exciting. So, I, you know, I, I smashed up concrete. I did manual labor um, just to tide myself over. Um, I helped my brother. He basically does he does websites. He had a drone website that was, um, you know, sort of failing. And I helped prop that up and that website actually got sold and I reinvested some of that money um, into Shift. I just did all sorts of these things just as a side project, just to keep keep the train rolling forwards. Um, but because, you know, you've got to keep that mission in mind and the reality that's so exciting in mind. And to be honest, if, if you, if you, you know, it, it's so exciting, right, that you, you don't mind it too much, right? You can sort of take the pain, but without that reality, just, you just feel the pain and you don't feel anything else. I'll second that if I can just add a counterbalancing thought here, which is, you know, <clears throat> uh, it would be amazing if, if uh, we can reset our biological age or, or gradually move back in that direction. However, it may also lead to very great disappointment if it turns out that it's more challenging than expected to do so. So, um, you know, you were talking about how um, something like comparison is the source of all misery or something. Well, another great source of misery for people, especially in the modern day, is uh, expectations that are too out of line with reality. <laughs> so um, just just a thought there. But if I may add the, the thought, the, the, the other question I was going to bring up here, um, I ran an impromptu room uh, on a Tuesday night a couple weeks back on Clubhouse here, and I put the title, Do You Want to Live Forever? And it actually caught quite a few fish <laughs> uh, with some very interesting conversation from uh, a range of perspectives. And one of the things that... Um, one of the themes that kept coming up in people's commentary and responses is that they don't have a clear vision of what an extended healthy life and you know, long life into the future would actually look like. In fact, many people had uh, expressed the interest in living a longer life in order to see what the future would look like because they're curious. So the question I would put to you is, what is your vision of the future and what uh, an extended life at, at uh, you know, age reset to mid-20s would, would actually look like? So, so this is something I want to do at Shift, and it's it's just it's just to try and you know basically it's to try and make it clear why are we doing this? Yeah. So there's 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 obviously there's many different answers to this. One of them is, you know, just the health burden, right? Economically, this has to be done. It's like renewable energy. If we don't stop this inflating health burden, we're just going to be spending all our money on health and nothing else. And um, so that there's obviously that, and there's a few other arguments. But so for me personally, yeah, you know, I really enjoy being alive yeah and i enjoy new things and new technologies and just participating in what's going on and um, so for me it's mostly about having more life right because i like it 
um and so like at shift what we want what i'm going to encourage people to do is like what would you do with an extra 30 years you know would you learn three more degrees would you um you know would you uh, i don't know do some more droning which is <laughs> i fly this drone with a headset which is a lot of fun you know if i had unlimited time i'd probably do a lot more of that um i think <laughs> nathan has this he has this lambo was it longevity not lambos yeah um, honestly, if uh, if longevity was a reality, I would like to have a Lambo. I think I've earned it, and I'd like to drive that around Europe. Yeah, like I'd do that with the extra twenty years. I drive around Europe in my Lamborghini. I imagine, imagine it's a reality, and Aubrey de Grey pulls up in a Lamborghini. Yeah, that's pretty cool, you know. And he's earned it as well. So, you know, it's, it's you know what 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 are you going to do with those extra years? So for me, having those extra years, I can do way more things right and you know you've got this space travel and stuff that might happen it's just it's just infinitely exciting right we just don't have access to it to, to it at the moment and we have a cap on what we enjoy doing at the moment and uh there's just there's just many reasons i want to do this um you know the obvious ones but also some of these so in other words uh just teasing nathan here what you're suggesting daniel is not longevity not lambos uh, but longevity and lambos longevity before lambo so i said basically you need to earn it yeah if you're going to do things that are indulgent you need to do some really you know you need to do a lot of good first and then you can be a bit indulgent fair, fair enough i can i can certainly side with that so, so robert if i if i wasn't in that room that you set up are people not able to visualize what it will look like so for example do we think the aging we deal we do, we do still age we show signs of decline but it's a different rate or are people still hung up on the fact that my birth certificate says I'm 150 but I look 20 years of age what's what's the sort of that conversation around it, it was very interesting andrew it was actually a whole range of of, of answers including the ones that you said including also people that said they don't want to live longer and they give various reasons for that uh, I think what I'm going to do, I'm, I'm very back up, backed up on all kinds of stuff around the, the Q&A here. But what I will do is once we get the recording, today's recording actually will be much easier than the previous. We figured out using the second account here that's uh, sitting on the, in the audience here, Longevity Show, uh, we're able to record this cleanly. And that will be a quick post uh, probably to, to YouTube or something. But uh, I'm going to try to make show notes of all the previous calls, including that impromptu one, mm. because it was a very interesting uh, set of responses. And uh, some people were saying that, you know, many people said, for example, that they wouldn't want to live longer unless their friends and family and loved ones were around them. So obviously, you know, what's the point of living uh, to, to 500 if you're not going to have your, your, uh, the people that matter to you? Mm -hmm. But there also, uh, you know, one interesting response I got from a, a woman that said that she didn't want to live uh, longer was that she had seen a scene related to this. She had seen a scene in, in one of the Lord of the Rings uh, movies of one of the elves who was immortal but had wanted to marry a, a human. And her father had, had warned her, uh, you know, if you, if you marry him, then think of all the time that you're gonna be around after he dies by yourself. And then she had an image of herself walking in, in a forested area for like forever, basically, without the, the person that she was uh, in love with in, in the movie. And I thought that was very interesting because here you have a work of fiction that is having a profound real world impact on someone uh, here here uh, on earth so uh, you know like I'm, I'm essentially asking in an open-ended way like what are the 
the images, scenes, books, movies, uh, what have you, or just the imagination that you might have about the future. Myself, for instance, I, when I uh, thought about um, living uh, not quite at the age of, say, mid-20s, as Daniel's saying, but say in the 30s, it would be the uh, franchise of The Highlander, uh, where it shows like a fictional world where some people are born, they live hundreds of years, they never die unless they're beheaded, etc. Uh, that shows a very interesting uh, thing where it's like you can imagine yourself living through all these epochs of human uh, civilization and all this kind of stuff, and it, it has that kind of excitement to it. But other people have other views. And so that th the benefit of that room was uh, to try to get a sense of the perspectives that are outside the typical perspectives expressed by longevity advocates and enthusiasts, because there tends to be kind of some groupthink in this community as well. For sure. No, that's fascinating. I mean, I guess uh, based on those things you were saying, you know, I, I think we, no matter in our finite, relatively short space of life now, if we think of what we could achieve, we go through series of friends <laughs> over our lifespan anyway. I'm not saying my friends are disposable, but, uh, you know, there, there is going to be an inevitable stepping stone through that life. Well, as it was put in, uh, in the memorable uh, graduation speech, uh, that was narrated by Baz Luhrmann, if you search for it on YouTube, wear sunscreen. Uh, there's a good line in there that says, friends come and go, but a precious few you should hold on to. <laughs> yeah. um, and just, I just wanted to add one other thing, which is like, you know, say, say this, this reality, which I think we're collectively excited about. What, what does that do to um, people's priorities, right? As you know, individuals and as groups. So all of a sudden you've got the you've got as much time as you you need right you just you know there is no upper bound on the time that you need to address a problem and so there's there's so many changes in the dynamics right what do we choose to focus on um how much money do we put into something before we declare it a success or a failure um but i think a lot of good things will start happening when you open up that um that time dimension which is basically capped arbitrarily at the moment because you know we just haven't evolved beyond that that's a very interesting perspective good point that you brought up uh, i forgot about that one actually another thing that people brought up in that impromptu room was that by having indefinite time uh it would put less pressure on people to actually live life or to get things done so there, there are positions on both sides of that debate yeah that's true absolutely robert is that really true though because um i guess one experiment you could do is uh, ask children who have not been informed about, you know, death, w whether they have, you know, a, a strict sort of timeline on trying to do things or not, because, but that obviously is, you know, not controlled because those are children. But uh, I don't know. Uh, can you guys remember a time before you, you uh, knew about uh, a death, I guess? Did you, do you, do you know what your, your, uh, ambitions were at that time <laughs> i think we're definitely selected for survival <laughs> uh, and so so i think if you take away you know if, what would be the selection uh, pressure to remove our reason to run or to have motivation yeah no this i mean i, I think i'm way out of my um sort of you know square of expertise but yeah, sort of motivation. I mean, that's a whole area, right? It's like what motivates people. You know, why is you know why is it that jobs are good for you? As a, you know, 
I think that's a whole area in its own right. Um, I mean, what, yeah, when I was very, very young um, and I didn't know about dying, I think I think when when dying is a very distant prospect, you just you do behave slightly differently. Um, I don't I can't remember exactly. I mean, when you're a kid, there's too many things that are different. Right. So it's not like a controlled experiment. But I think you could just do, you know, you could just do that in your head. Um, I haven't done that comprehensively, but I think the things I've mentioned already, you know, just changing priorities and things like that. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to chime in on this question. But before I chime in on the question, I have a question for everybody on stage, and it just needs to be one sentence so that I chime in after. I think, Daniel, you just answered why you want longevity, which is to experience things longer, correct? Um, specifically, flying my drone, yeah. Okay, Nathan, why do you want to do longevity? Well, mostly it's because uh, I don't want people to suffer from biological aging. I just think these age-related diseases uh, have to Robert? I'm into life extension. I'm just not quite as diehard as all the rest of them. Cameron? Thank you, Laura. I, I think for me, it's um, uh, in for the sake of uh, opportunities. And, and opportunities, you mean having more opportunities in the future, I, I imagine. Yes, um, a, a more, uh, a less finite horizon of opportunities for every one of us. And you, Andrew? Yeah, I, th I think it's to stop age-related diseases. And of all those things, why do you think would motivate people the most? For, for people to jump on the train and get behind this, I, I, I think most people are intrinsically driven. You mean for their own experience? Yes, yes. Um, I think so too, that basically we come into the world alone and we leave the world alone. It's like a very, I mean, we can be part of a community and a society, but in the end we are live our lives independently as our own person. I do think that, however, with things like this, because they're so massive, we do, it needs to have some sort of collective consciousness aim. When you think of going to space, you know, what motivated people to be okay for the government to spend billions of dollars to achieve something that has nothing to do with them? It was because of a collective consciousness of people thinking, yeah, this is really progress. And in a way, I think longevity could be something like that if we can get people to really have a collective mind about it. But for it to be happen that way, I do think that um, talking about the things that matter to people is crucial. Life extension doesn't matter to people because most people don't even have enough money to live up to their 60s, never mind into 100. And... I also think that focusing on issues that matter to people, if you touch them um, from their psyche and things that rather than say, I want longevity because I would love. I mean, I think one of the key things is um, aging is really horrible and we don't speak about it enough because we kind of like don't think about it and younger people don't think about it that much. 
But we really need to make animals bring how aging is to the forefront of what really happens there for people to think, oh, shoot, I don't want that future because nobody wants to end up like that. If they knew they could, if they knew there was a choice, they would take it. And longevity is that choice. I, I, I just comment, Laura, that I think there's a stick approach and there's a carrot approach. So the stick approach is scare everybody to death, right? You're going to get Alzheimer's and you, you know everybody's going to get something. Um, but I think the Apple approach has been under underemphasized. So, you know, what are the great things about that extra 20 years? Uh, I'm not, but I mean, it's not about making a stick approach of saying make people afraid of that, because I don't think making people afraid of things works either. No. But it's also about stopping talking about life extension or things that don't people can't relate to. And there's too much of that conversation in terms of when we talk about the technology itself. I, I don't think there's any right or wrong answers here. I think there's, there's personal answers. And uh, I think, yeah, when, when things become more serious, there's certainly collectively collective discussions. I remember I had this, uh, <laughs> this guy show up after my talk and he basically, he'd, he'd realised that this science wasn't just make-believe. And he said, you can't do this. And I was like, what do you mean you can't, you can't do this? And he's like, this is like an atomic weapon. And I was like, it's not quite like an atomic weapon. I was... I had to. I was. I just was there until the very end with this guy, like an hour and a half, where he's basically trying to convince me not to develop these technologies because it's going to be the end of us, like atomic weapons was. So, yeah, it, you know, there's there's a lot of opinions to um, consolidate, um, but I think you know we. You know, I think we're 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 up to the task, right, of doing that and having discussions and communicating and stuff. I'm with you on that, Daniel. Uh, the the arid approach is probably under. Uh, emphasized and and uh, <clears throat> people probably just don't believe that it's possible. They don't know what the, what's going on in the research and all this kind of stuff. Um, but if I can ask also, you just mentioned this uh, debate that you were having with the guy who's comparing these technologies to atomic weapons. If you if I can ask, like, can you elaborate a little bit on on what was uh, discussed and, and who this person was or their background? Because that's a very interesting perspective that seems also quite rare. Um, so, th so there's quite there's quite a few individuals in Cambridge that um, they yeah they 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 focus on the you know the scary sides right it's it's the unintended consequences um, you know ethical considerations around you know and this is a valid area um, but sometimes it can interfere right with the, you know the very early technology and getting things up and running and basically he was just you know he was just very concerned because he he really bought into this that this is a reality that there was too much responsibility in too many, too few hands. You know, it was like I was making decisions on behalf of society, um, which I think is a little distant from the truth. Um, there might be a part of, you know, there's, there's always a small truth to these things, but I, I just said to him, look, um, nothing, <laughs> nothing's going to get decided in shift bioscience about your life, okay? It's, uh, there's there's a lots, of, lots of checks and balances. Nothing's foolproof, but... You know, we're very early days, and I think basically the more people know about this, the more people can you know apply different valves and pressure points and make sure that it doesn't go in a scary direction. But I mean, we're just uh, Aubrey. Aubrey articulates this very well. We're just trying to keep people healthy ultimately. And uh, what's so dangerous about that? It's just an extension of medicine. He articulates it now because for I think ten years they were touting the life extension thing, and that wasn't working. Well, to be <laughs> Well, I mean, they said it on the call that you guys had, which I found it fascinating. And I think it's so correct. Um, we can't speak to people telling them about life extension because 
that simply doesn't interest most people. Uh, what in, I mean, and especially after COVID, there's a huge opportunity with people realizing that health is even more important than wealth. It's like the one thing that you just can't do without and no matter how much money you have, you don't necessarily have health if you are not um, taking care of yourself or you're exposed. Might also show that money makes a big difference. And I do think that there is in the, the media a big push in saying things that longevity is, you know, you find the articles from the New York Times and the opinion pieces and you, longevity is very tied to billionaires right now, which is a dangerous game because there's a lot of um, animosity towards that billionaires as it is. All right, yes, sorry, sorry to cut you off. There is a perception problem. I think we hit upon some crazy stuff here at the end. I do want to remind everybody, we're now cl closing in on three hours, 7 p.m. Uh, so sorry to cut this short, uh, fascinating conversation. Daniel, would you be open to doing this? Maybe we can continue where we're leaving. Uh, absolutely, Robert. And uh, I, I saw that Mihai has joined. I'm going to set up a, I'm going to set up a separate room, Mihai, um, okay, and you can come talk to me. Sure. Yeah, I just wanted to chip in a bit, but uh, yeah, if it's late, that's grand. We can do it another time. All right, this was fantastic. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Um, hopefully, this was informative, and uh, we can do this again. Uh, we will do this again at some point. Uh, uh, I'm going to close the rooms shortly and close the recording as well. Uh, thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks, Daniel, for sharing your story. It's just so inspirational. It makes me want to work even harder and endure even more pain. <laughs> Fantastic. And uh, yeah, good to speak to you, Nathan. Um, have a good evening, Robert. You, nice, you... To meet you, Dan. nice to meet you, Daniel. Thank you. You too, Andrew. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a nice evening. Bye. Close it up.